Welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, he is a writer whose work has appeared in The Hollywood Reporter and The Village Voice. He also hosts the podcast The Amazing Spider Talk. Dan Gvo- <laughs> Oh man, I messed up your name. Dan Gvozdin, right? Dan Gvozdin. You, you got it there, Dave. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's great to have you on. Uh, yeah, Dan Gvozdin, uh, I, I, you know, I, I spent like an hour practicing it in the mirror, and it's still, when the moment came, I couldn't, I couldn't deliver. Uh, but that, Dan, that made it creepier, way creepier. Yeah, uh, but Dan is a slash filmcast zombie from way back, is my understanding. I, uh, I've been listening to you guys since you were the Watchers. Dan has been listening since we were a different name podcast. Uh, yeah, over and, a decade ago. Yeah, man, crazy times. Crazy times. Um, and before people knew what podcasts were, before when people barely understood what the concept of podcasts were, we knew and... before before Mark Marin invented the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. It was I... before that time. Yeah, before serial will be like BS on the timeline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Dan, it's great to have you on. And in addition to uh, being a Slash Filmcast fan, which obviously makes you someone who has excellent taste, uh, you also have excellent knowledge of Spider-Man because you host an entire podcast about uh, Spider-Man called The Amazing Spider Talk. And so I thought, hey, why not bring you on to review uh, the newest Spider-Man movie, which is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is what we're going to get to later on in this week's episode of the show. Uh, Before that, we got a few follow-up items I want to mention, and then also uh, we got some emails uh, to read and some what we've been watching as well. So uh, that's what's in store on today's episode of the Slash Filmcast. Find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. So let's talk about some follow-ups. Uh, I want to talk about some non-spoilery follow-ups from our conversation last week about the film Roma. We got a bunch of great emails uh, about Roma, uh, and I'm going to read one. This one comes in from Zamir from Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, Zamir writes into slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, really enjoyed your Roma review and everyone's take on the film. Um, I have to mostly agree with Britt's take on the film and her critique of the lack of agency of the main character in Roma. I also like to point out that this is the type of film with the main focus put on the live-in maid in middle-class Latin American family is nothing new in Latin American cinema and some have done a really good job exploring the inner lives of the, uh, these domestic workers. And then Zamir lists uh, several films that do just that. Uh, live-in maid from the year 2004 in Argentina. The Maid uh, from 2009 in Chile. And The Milk of Sorrow from 2009 in Peru. Uh, Zamir continues, All these are good uh, at exploring the common occurrence in uh, Latin American life of live-in maids who are usually from the poor indigenous class of their respective countries. Uh, But all these films also suffer from something Roma suffers from the most. And what I think Brit was picking up on. uh, And that's class dissonance slash guilt. It's similar to white guilt, uh, where white filmmakers try to tell black stories that maybe could have been told better by black filmmakers. Look at like Detroit, Hidden Figures, and Green Book, meaning something is always lost in trying to tell someone else's story. As well-intentioned as a filmmaker can be, there is an inevitable disconnect that can rarely be bridged in fully understanding someone else's story. And Alfonso Cuaron comes from an upper class uh, from Mexico. Him trying to tell the story is immensely difficult, which I believe shows in the film with the main character in Roma, uh, things just happen to her. 
and she witnesses an amalgamation of historical events in modern Mexican history. I think you can tell the difference most in comparing Itumama Tambien to Roma because in Itumama Tambien, he's telling the story of social class in Mexico and is much more immersed in that world and the lives of those characters as opposed to Roma, where even the camera work uh, is starkly different from Itumama Tambien. Uh, very intimate as opposed to Roma, where every shot is like a ghost watching, as Devendra said. Uh, in the end, I'm happy for Jeff's caretaker for uh, having a film that represents her in a big movie. And it just shows that representation goes a long way for groups of people who have largely been ignored for years. But hopefully we start seeing these stories like Roma from people who have lived them. Uh, end quote. So that comes in from Zamir uh, from Elizabeth, New Jersey. And he uh, seemed to agree with uh, some of the more negative takes on last week's episode of the show. Uh, we also got uh, several emails uh, obviously agreeing with the, the positive uh, aspects and that uh, and stating that the kind of disconnected uh, sh- shooting style of the movie uh, was very intentional, you know, uh, and I, I think I've read interviews with Alfonso Cuaron and it's it's clearly like something he was going for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it's it's like a very specific style. And, uh, you know, our readers, or I'm sorry, our listeners have pointed out some of the issues that come with that. Um, but I certainly still think it's a movie that's worth watching. And now that it's on Netflix, uh, have you guys checked it out again on Netflix? Um, any of you? I've played a little bit just to see what it sounds like. Yeah, and just to yeah, kind of like get a taste of like what it what the presentation is, right? It, it looks amazing. It, do, it does look very good. Yeah, It's certainly hard to avoid it on Netflix. It's everywhere <laughs> on that platform. I mean, that's uh, great. I think yeah, this no. is the first time they've like really sold, hey, we have this movie. Go see the stupid thing, you know? Yeah, I, I, I would love to have this approach for nearly all of their great films that they've been putting mm-hmm. out. I have to search for all of them. I, otherwise, I wouldn't know they exist unless I scoured the internet for clues about them. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, a lot of people pointed out that on Netflix, Roma was part of the login screen, which is something I've never seen Netflix do before. Um, but yeah, uh, it, they really pulled out all the stops this time. Uh, Dan, ha- cool. have you seen the film? Do you like it? Yes, I did. And I really enjoyed your guys' conversation about it because I, I felt a little lukewarm on it, very kind of detached. So hearing all the different perspectives kind of helped me, um, you know, reappreciate appreciate the film. And, and I think walking away from it, I end up, you know, picking up a bunch of moments in the film that really stick with me. And I, I really love and obviously the cinematography, but um, I, I still I, I feel like I didn't couldn't really connect to the characters and what he was trying to say. And I'm hoping maybe on a rewatch that, you know, that will start coming into more clarity for me. I wanted to follow up on a few other things about Roma. We talked about the look of the movie. Uh, There is an interview uh, between the famous cinematographer, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki and Alfonso Cuaron, uh, where they talk about a lot of the decisions that he made. And there are a lot of insights in this interview that I wanted to just share with the podcast. One of the things that he talked about was uh, the decision to shoot it in black and white and I, I don't remember if it was Davinder or Jeff that commented on like how beautiful, like how uh, pristine the film looked, even despite mm-hmm. being shot in black and white, right? Uh, and that was uh, the result of a couple decisions. One of them is the decision to shoot on something called uh, Alexa 65, uh, which is like a, the equivalent of a 65 millimeter on a modern digital camera. Uh, That's wild. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So as a result, it looks incredible. Um, it looks, and he, he says here in this interview, he says, and we'll link to it in the show notes, um, quote, I didn't want a film that looks vintage, that looks old. I wanted to do a modern film 
that looks into the past, end quote. So uh, I thought that was a great description of kind of what it ended up being, right? It's uh, it's like a modern look, but that's like looking into the past. It's like a window into the past, but with a modern perspective. Uh, and so really appreciated that. Uh, and just a couple other tidbits I wanted to share w- with you folks. Uh, last week on the show, we talked about planes, right? And Jeff, you mentioned how there's like a lot of planes in the background. So I literally yeah. just got back. I, I, I like rushed home to record this episode. I just got back from another screening of Roma because uh, uh, I went to go see it with a couple of my friends who are uh, Mexican. And they love the movie and they said it's extremely authentic and it feels extremely true to life. And I asked them about the planes, like what's the significance of the planes? And they said that uh, in in Mexico City, uh, back then, there was an airport that's right next to the poorest part of the city. And so uh, at one point in the movie, they they are at a relatively poor part. And you see the planes are much lower to the ground. And then, right. like, where uh, Cleo, the main character, uh, lives, there are still planes, but they are much higher and farther away. Um, and I just love that there's that, like, level of detail that you might not even know uh, if, you, if you weren't, you know, if you don't live in Mexico or, or aren't familiar with the airplane layout, airport layout. But um, it's there for those who have lived it. Uh, and so that's, that was the significance of, of the planes. I, I always thought the planes were kind of like this symbol of like the divine in some way. She's like the film opens with her kind of cleaning the floor where all the dog poop is that they keep showing us. And we see a reflection of the plane mm-hmm. in it. And and my interpretation was that like it's this kind of low work, this kind of grounded work that mm. really kind of opens us up to a, like a higher dimension or something like that. Right, right. Um, Interesting. That, yeah. that was my thought about it. I do think it's that sort of imagery that probably turns some people off from the movie too, because it's kind of a kind of a condescending thing, you know. Like, look at this maid and her work and cleaning all this dog poop. There's something something truly special about that, right? Uh, there there is a scene in the movie um, specifically where she makes a specific pose that I felt was a little much in terms of what he was trying to say about her, and mm-hmm. I, I sort of felt that too. Yeah. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention about the movie is uh, there is a really uh, impressive scene that takes place on a beach. And we kind of speculated about how they did that. Uh, and they, they basically had to build an entire like a jetty uh, on this beach to shoot the scene. And I'm not going to reveal any more because I don't want to say any more uh, about the film. But I'd recommend reading this interview that we'll link to uh, where he describes how challenging it was to shoot that scene. Um, because it is as challenging as you would imagine it would be. So uh, anyway, just wanted to to follow up on those things from our Roma conversation from last week. Thanks to all the people who wrote into us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. So let's move on to what we've been watching this week. I want to talk about a couple things. Uh, one thing that is amazing and one thing that was not as good. And then one thing that was horrible. Uh, so <laughs> let's start with, why don't we start with the good? Let's just, let's start with the good because we want to keep our spirits up here on the podcast. Uh, Free Solo. Have you guys heard of this movie? Free Solo? Mm-hmm. It's a documentary. Yeah, I've been dying to see it. I, I really want to see it. Uh, it is a documentary about Alex Honnold. And by the way, this, this documentary did very well at the box office. It made $10 million domestic box office, which is, which is very good uh, for documentaries. I think this is a year that's shown... That between like three identical, uh, uh, what is it? Three identical, 
uh, Strangers. Strangers. Yes. Three Identical Strangers and Free Solo. Like those movies both did very well uh, in, in theaters. And so I think people are still willing to turn out to uh, movie theaters to watch documentaries. Anyway, Free Solo is about uh, Alex Honnold who decided to free solo El Capitan, the 3,000 vertical rock face at Yosemite National Park. Uh, have any of you been to Yosemite before? Have seen El Capitan? Yeah. Jeff? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Like, what, what are adjectives you'd use to describe uh, El Capitan? Uh, I mean, awesome in the purest, most dictionary <laughs> interpretation of that word. It is awe-inspiring. It right. Is, it, it's it just this massive slab of yeah. rock, right? That that mm-hmm. seems like it's almost like straight vertical, right? Like it feels like yeah. it's like up and down. And Alex Honnold, uh, he decided to free solo. And what free soloing is, for those who don't know, is climbing. Insane. It's climbing it without the use of ropes, right? So it's, it's just what a Tom dude. Cruise is doing in Mission Impossible 2. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's, At the beginning of Mission Impossible 2, and he's awesome, and then he throws his glasses and they explode. I assume this movie is exactly like that. Yeah. No, I was going to say, is the glasses throwing mandatory? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's nothing like that. It's, a, it's, it's very, uh, very interesting because here's the thing. Um, this is not just like, hey, I'm going to go to the mountain and just like on a whim, you know, climb up the mountain and see how it goes. Uh, he had to ascend dozens of times with ropes. And memorize the entire path. Like, okay, at this stage, I'm going to put my hand on this, like, tiny, you know, outcropping of rock. And I'm going to put my hand, my foot, my left foot here and the right foot here. Like, thousands of individual movements. And he, he's not going to do it exactly the same each time. But he had plotted a path for himself up the mountain, right? And that's one of the things that uh, was so impressive about this movie is how intricate and detailed that planning had to be. Uh uh, by the way, I, I, I'm just going to point out that uh, he made it. Like, they wouldn't have released the movie if he died. So, spoiler alert, he made it. Um, but one of the things that's amazing about the movie, in addition to him uh, ascending it, is how they shot it. Uh, they didn't just use, like, DSLRs, right? They they use like, actual large rigs. And you have these camera people just literally dangling off the side of the, with a huge camera pack on the shoulder, just dangling, you know, like a thousand feet in the in the air, uh, pointing a camera, you know, for what seems like many minutes in one direction, just to grab a shot of this guy like traversing through one tiny section of it. The, yeah, only- the other thing that comes to mind is all of those people are sitting there, potentially watching someone die. Yes, that's correct. That's but actually the, uh, one one <laughs> slight misstep, and they just. See a guy plummet to his death. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things that the movie addresses is like wow. there's this tension because they're all friends. They're not like uh, – it's not like this stranger, right? They all climb together because they they have to cl- – like if you want to make movies about rock climbing, you have to climb with them, right? right? And so they're all friends and the director is – on. he's a character in the film and he talks about how like am I really okay watching my friend plummet to his death? And not only that. Turns out, yes. <laughs> Not only that, but like, is the existence of cameras, uh, will that make him behave differently? Right? right? Like, will he feel like he needs to perform more or uh, take more chances uh, or yeah. take more risks yeah. than he would have if there were no cameras? Right? Wow. And so the Crazy. movie kind of uh, addresses these things, right? Um, but is this, is this practice legal? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's legal. He has he has not been tried or convicted or you know. Because <laughs> I know like there's that. a lot of these guys that do it and it's illegal. It's like mm. there there are places that will not let you climb without safety equipment, hmm. and they do it anyway. Interesting. Uh, I didn't know if Yosemite was that. Well, I mean, what is interesting is that uh, the free soloers die very often. Like that's what's yes. something that's that's conveyed the best in the of movie. Them do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people who are best in the world die very often. And it was it was interesting like uh, during the movie he at one point he's talking about oh at this at this stage in the climb I I can do one of two things. I can do this extremely difficult karate kick and like hoist myself over to the side or I can jump. Oh, and Jesus. and jump and try to grab onto this rock. And, and he was trying to deb- they're both like equally challenging and he's like he's trying to debate like which one he should do and he's like well the jump is really that's a tough one because if you miss the jump that's it like it's it's over like if you <laughs> if you miss this one jump you're dead you know what i mean and there's no like extra life or anything you know and so it it seems insane to like put your whole life on a a single jump right God. uh which i thought like yeah i mean uh, so the cinematography. How is the commentary delivered? Is, is he monologuing on the way up the mountain, or is it like talking heads? It, after yeah, the fact? there's some talking heads, but it basically chronicles like his whole thought process and training to do the free solo is what it, is what mm-hmm. most of the movie is. So, uh, yeah. so the cinematography is bonkers. There's like some all time greatest shots in this movie, right? Of, and you just see like just a dude. On the mountain, like on this massive mountain. I mean, even the poster, you, if you look at the poster, is incredible, right? Uh, and yeah, and Jeff, I mean, you bring up really good points about like what are the ethics of watching or making a movie like this, right? Is it yeah. you know um, that ultimately, like, yeah, he was he was okay watching his friend plummet to his death, and and the, I don't think the movie really you know, does a good job of reckoning with that, but it does show some of the anguish that these people go through and, and trying to figure out whether they should film it. Uh, but it, nonetheless, uh, it, it is like, it is watching one of the greatest human accomplishments of all time is, is really what you're doing when you're watching this movie. Yeah. So uh, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend it. Um, and I think it'll be out on home video at some point in your future. It's a national geographic film, uh, but it is really impressive and it's probably going to make my top 10 of the year. So, what are the ethics of showing a film like this to Tom Cruise and telling him it's for real? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not yeah, sure. he wouldn't have really, you know, Ethan Hunt wouldn't have had a second thought about the jump. He, <laughs> he would do the jump and the karate kick. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's he true. did the jump in Mission Impossible too, right? That, that was right. like a key move. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's true. Yeah, he did do the jump. That's right. It's imagine like a jump like that. Basically, that's what it was, right? Except Tom without ropes. like, uh, so what missions is he solving here? He's just he's just climbing a rock. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice two hour cold open. Where's the rest of the movie? <laughs> Give me three devices to disarm, and we're good. Uh, Alex Honnold also did a TED talk about his experience as well. So I, I, I watched that after, and that was a good supplement to the film. Uh, but the movie's free solo, and I would recommend it. Uh, so on the not as good side, I had a chance to watch Green Book. Have you guys heard of Green Book? This is yes. uh, sadly yes. This yeah. is okay. So I'll read the plot summary here. Um, uh, Doctor Don Shirley is a world class African American pianist who's about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South in 1962. In need of a driver and protection, Shirley recruits Tony Lip, a tough talking bouncer from an Italian American neighborhood in the Bronx. Despite their differences, the two men soon develop an unexpected bond while confronting racism and danger in an era of segregation. And uh, I made this tweet about Green Book that. Uh, like 
got me more blowback than I thought it would. Uh, which I said, uh, let's see. I'm looking it up here. I said, I watched Green Book, and it was about a white racist who teaches a black guy how to be more black and how we'd all be better off if racists and the victims of racism just got along better. Your enjoyment of the film will likely depend on your receptiveness to that message. And I, I literally thought, I, I, I think I'm only mildly exaggerating when I say I literally thought I was just stating the text of the film. Like, I, I, that, that is what I thought the movie was trying to say. And I got a lot of people were like criticizing me being like, you know, that that's super harsh, Dave. Da, da, da. And I'm like, I'm, uh, that is what the movie is saying. Like it's this, yeah. it's Viggo Mortensen plays a racist. Um, there, you know, uh, Mahershala Ali plays, uh, a black pianist going through Jim Crow South touring and, uh, and being subject to racism. And, uh, the two kind of like teach each other, uh, a better understanding of humanity. And I think Mark Harris did a great job of running down like what's wrong with movies like Green Book, which is just that they feel like they are out of, you know, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, right? This kind of mm-hmm. kumbaya. The driving like, Miss both, Daisy type mentality. Yeah, driving yeah. is exactly right, Devinger. Like this driving yeah. Miss Daisy, both sides have something to contribute to the conversation. Like, oh, like, it, like look at how much we all have to learn from each other. Right. You know, like, and I'm sure I can imagine somebody who was big in Hollywood in that period looks at this and is like, wait, now, now the white guy's driving him. That's the movie. I know. It's yeah. like, it's so great. Uh, and uh, so it's not, I mean, it's certainly, I can understand why people would find it to be an offensive film. And in fact, the uh, the relatives of Dr. Don Shirley have since come out uh, and publicly uh, denounced the movie. They've said like this movie contained. They called it a symphony of lies. Is what they yeah, said on its uh, face. Like everything about the movie is, is that, that it is. It is a gross misrepresentation of their relationship because like a big part of the movie is about Dr. Don Shirley, the the pianist, and how he's like so disconnected with his family and and he doesn't like he 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 feels like a, a like an outsider to his own race. And you know it's uh, it's Viggo Mortensen's mildly racist character that helps him to reconnect with his family. You know, like it's all this stuff. And you know, the, his the real life Don Shirley's family is like, well, that that never happened. None of that was true. Um, but at and, least it was a symphony of lies. That's correct. Uh, the, uh, the poster will say a symphony. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know if they're going to use that pull quote, Jeff. Mm, uh, right, but well. in any case, I mean, yeah, it's. So it's it's not even really that accurate, and uh, the story as is, it just it just feels like it's from a different era. It feels like we don't really need this kind of story anymore. Like we have other choices today right. about you know how we view these types of. Story. I mean, um, yeah, there's 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 uh, a more diverse uh, slate of filmmakers behind the camera these days, uh, yeah. that can tell stories like this and from a different and uh, more interesting perspective. So better point of views, like, uh, you know, more nuanced point of views. Yeah. I will say when I first saw the trailer for this, I was like, Oh, I'm a Herschel Ali. That's a, that's interesting. This looks cool. Viga Martinson. And then Peter Farrelly. And I remember, uh, we talked about project Greenlight a couple of years ago. Uh, I will never forget how Peter Farrelly treated producer Effie Brown and like, you know, she's a really uh, well-known and very prolific um, producer. black producer. Yeah. yeah. And she's made a lot of stuff. And Peter Farrelly would not show her any any instance of, like, respect. 
or like there was just like a lot of like subtle racism going on there. That was a whole thing that really turned me off of him in general. Uh, but then seeing him produce a movie like this and thinking like, oh, OK, that that's kind of. Yeah, he really, he really walked into it. He really stepped in it yeah. after after that you know, Project Greenlight appearance, given the, uh, uh, you know, the subject matter of this fil- yeah. film. I think the impression you get from this movie and by the way, I will say it is a very competently made film. Um, I think, mm-hmm. uh, it certainly like feels like Peter Farrelly has advanced a great deal in filmmaking since the days of, uh, dumb and dumber. Dumb and right? dumber. So yeah. I think, I think this is actually like really well made. It's, it's just merely the subject matter and the execution of it that is lacking. The movie was written by, uh, I think the son of the, uh, Viggo Mortensen's real life character. Right, the real life dude that Viggo Mortensen is playing, uh, and it shows. It shows that it's from that perspective, and and uh, a lot of people find that to be a problem. So, uh, again, I think it's it, it is completely an, an acceptable movie, especially uh, an acceptably made movie if you're from an older generation. Like I've I've heard lots of uh, anecdotal evidence, people tweeting at me saying like, "Oh yeah, I was with." I was with a crowd of retirees, like white retirees, and they went wild for this movie. You know, like that someone tweeted that at me, and it's like, well, you sure they weren't in a screening of The Mule instead? <laughs> it's possible, <laughs> but I think yeah, it's uh, if you're from a certain generation, I think you might find this to be a feel-good, uh, warm-hearted film, and uh, if you are not from that generation, you might find it to be uh, pretty rough when it comes to racial politics. So that's a green book. Uh, I am not a fan, but, uh, yeah. again, it's it just, it's, it's hard because it's like not like a, it's not terribly made, you know, it is competently yeah. made. It's just hard. It to, sounds like a movie I'll hate watch when it hits HBO. Yeah. Which I, think, I think that's a good <laughs> thing. That's a good thing you should think about doing. So I had a really awkward moment regarding a uh, green book. I found myself, um, on the universal studios lot in the Amblin studios, like bungalow, or Amblin Entertainment Bungalow, for reasons I can't say, and which if you ever get the chance to go there, I highly recommend it. You know, it's like Spielberg's little workshop there, and I got invited into Spielberg's private theater there, which is also amazing with his personal uh, projectionist, and there's like a candy bar and everything you could think that would be in Spielberg's uh, private theater, right. and uh, you know they're like we're really excited, we're going to be showing you. Like, you know, our next film's coming out of our slate. And so it was this, you know, Green Book and On the Basis of Sex, that trailer. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's like me and some of the people and and they're asking for our feedback. And I was like, you know, like, I'm never going to get to go to this place again. Like, do I really tell them what I think uh, about these two products that they're showing me? Like, it was it was one of the most like. Uh, I was so indecisive because, like, you're in Spielberg's home. What, are you going to tell Spielberg you don't like his movies? I, I don't know. Yeah, how do you tell God he doesn't exist? Um, <laughs> the, so, what did you what did you do? You didn't say anything, I assume. I, you know, I ultimately was like, well, the Green Book trailer worked a little bit better for me. You know, I, I, this I'd is an curious. amazing candy bar. Yeah, <laughs> wow. my mouth is full. I can't. I, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I went there and I had to get Reese's Pieces because, you know, E.T. And then you oh, yes. quickly realize that nobody can open a Reese's Pieces package. Aww. It's They're like sealed by God himself. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so I spent, mostly spent my time trying to fumble to open the candy and then like said, yeah, you know, I like the first one better. 
And, uh, you know, uh, I'm curious about Peter Farrelly, but it was, it was an awkward scenario mm. because it was like <laughs> top producers in a, like a holier place than I'll ever visit. Was yeah. it, it was just the trailer. It was the trailers. And then they did like a kind of like big reel of all the like history of Amblin and all this stuff. It was great, <laughs> but it was, you know, when you go there, you expect to get a little bit better trailers than, than maybe that. Yeah. Although there's certainly the Green Book trailer is okay. Like as a trailer in terms of right. what the movie is, you, you kind of get the sense of what it is. Yeah. All right. Last thing I want to talk about that I saw is I went to go see into the spider verse this weekend. Now I had already seen Spider-Man into the spider verse at a press screening uh, a few weeks ago. And I, this is a movie that I really loved and we'll talk about why in, in a few minutes. And I wanted to support it at, at the theater, right? I wanted to show my support for this movie that I, that I like because I want them to make more movies like this. And so I went to go see it at a at a theater, AMC Stubbs Atlas, thank you. And um <laughs> I show up Who at the theater. Thinking? Who are you thinking exactly? I get there I get there right on time and uh trailers start to play. Now a lot of people have asked this question about like, hey Dave, I thought you didn't watch trailers. Here is my the current Dave Chen trailer system is uh a trailer will come on and because I'm you know, I know about things that are happening in the movie world, I'll usually be able to identify what the movie is within the first, you know, ten seconds or so. And if it's a movie, two seconds more like right, ten is a very long time. You'll be able to identify it in the first two. Yeah, like when the the movie studio logo shows up and you hear the first music come in, probably. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, and so usually I, I will be able to identify what the movie is really quickly, and then I, I will know if there is, let's say, a I don't know, five percent chance I'm going to watch it in a theater. Um, I usually just piece out of that trailer right away and I piece out by closing my eyes or looking at the side of the screen or putting on headphones, like whatever, I stop watching it. Um, and if it's a movie that I'm like, well, I'm never going to watch this, you know, I will watch the trailer. And this was the first time I've been to a theater in a really long time when I felt like the trailers were trying to bludgeon me into submission. Like I was so psyched for into the spider verse. And but at the end of the trailers, I hated life and was questioning whether or not I should even be reviewing movies on a regular basis. Was um, one of the, Dave, I do a very similar thing where I, I, because the, the process of blocking out a trailer can be fatiguing, yeah. quite honestly. Exhausting. Do you, do you guys uh, just walk around with like noise canceling headphones like sometimes, all day? Yeah, I have noise canceling headphones. That's right. I have tried that. That would I, be the thing. I have tried that approach. Oftentimes, I just plug my ears, or <laughs> I do a vigorous motion in my ears to block out the uh, the. You just yeah. loudly shout la 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 la. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not listening. <laughs> um, the but uh, yes, I I I do very similar thing where 95 percent of the trailers I am not going to watch but there are a few that i'm like there's no reason to even go through the effort of not watching this trailer because it will ruin nothing in my life and i'm wondering if one of the trailers that you saw was for uh a dog's way home it's it's uh yes. it was for dog's way home and actually huh. so... i also watched that trailer dave yeah and it, what would you think jeff like i thought that was a pure david chen movie right there that movie my... is warhorse with a dog. <laughs> My favorite part of that trailer is when they show you literally the end of it. <laughs> they show you literally don't the worry, moment when they are reunited. Yeah. I mean, of course, a movie is called The Dog's Way Home, so you expect the dog to get home. But they show you the moment where it finds its owner again. I like how even Homeward Bound uh, had more suspense for like those early trailers back in the day for a kid's movie. So My I favorite part is the moment with the panther 
when the panther <laughs> and the dog rub heads together. The CGI panther. The CGI, that, that, a CGI panther shows up. Yeah, I note, dogs and panthers are friends. Yes. Yeah, yeah, note to filmmakers. If you're making a real-life dog movie, don't put a CGI panther next to the dog. <laughs> <laughs> My audience for the press screening was there, and it was the, all the Sony reps were there because it was like the first L.A. screening of Into the Spider-Verse. And the audience was open mouth guffawing at this movie. And I got to think those reps were kind of embarrassed. Yeah. They show you the end. It's the end of the movie. So I went to go see this. In a tuxedo and is clearly getting married. And he turns around <laughs> and the dog is showing up at his wedding. Okay, I, hey, not... I, got, I got your ring, man. Like, we get, let's end this movie. Yeah. Cool. I have not seen the movie nor read the book. But that you're, I will bet uh, any amount of money. That's exactly <laughs> what that scene is. So... Uh, I saw this trailer in front of the the press screening of Into the Spider-Verse and the real-life screening, like the paid screening of Into the Spider-Verse. It was in front of both uh, screenings. And at the press screening, I have never seen a, an audience turn on a trailer so quickly. <laughs> um they were yeah they were guffawing is a great way to put it Dan uh they were like outwardly mocking it and then at yeah. the end when the dog is reunited with the uh the owner uh somebody said very loudly uh all right now we don't need to see the movie dog comes home at the end and like that's <laughs> everyone everyone got a real kick out of that so uh but no i am talking about the 1 2 3 punch of a dog's way home breakthrough and overcomer the latter two of which are like faith-based movies. Uh, and, you know, I'm actually going to play a clip from Overcomer right now on the podcast just so you can endure what I endured. This is our town. It's a close-knit community. The kind of place where everyone knows everyone. Hi, Miss J. Hey, how are you girls? And we're always there for each other. Nice sermon, Pastor. What do you guys have on for the rest of the day? Well, John has a basketball game. Yeah, I've seen this guy hoop it up around here. This kid is so lit. Text your mom tomorrow and tell her when and where to pick you up. And uh, don't do anything stupid. Love you guys. Ten. Boys, get off the ice. We're training for the Olympics, sir. Cindy. He's been underwater for more than 15 minutes. It's going to be a recovery, not a rescue. I got something. We got him. We've done everything medically possible. There's nothing more we can do. Please, God, send your Holy Spirit to save my son. A 14-year-old St. Charles boy who spent 15 minutes trapped underwater is continuing to fight for his life. I don't believe John will survive the night. You don't know my son. He is a fighter, so I need you to be the best for John, and you just let God do the rest. You are my pride and joy. I can't wait to see you shoot those baskets and run up and down the court again. The Smith family asked for one thing. Please pray for John. Hopefully you enjoyed that, but I mean, it's it's basically this faith-based movie of uh, this kid who <laughs> goes, he falls in a lake. And in like this frozen lake and they, they drag him out after 15 minutes and uh, somehow he mirac- miraculously survives. And it's like, oh, because of our faith, uh, this kid's going to be saved. And uh, I just – this movie trailer <laughs> filled me with rage. I think it's kind of like, you know, when you see like somebody make a touchdown and they're like, you know, first of all, I want to thank God uh, for this. 
I, I grew up in a church and I think I've just found this whole idea of like, oh, if you, if you pray hard enough, if you had enough, if you have enough faith, uh, God's going to deliver for you. Right. That's really mm-hmm. what the message of a lot yeah. of these movies is. Fuck you, advanced science that saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's part of it. That part of it is like this More idea like, of fuck like, everybody else who didn't pray hard enough. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. right. You know, it's yeah. like this, this, uh, the implicit inverse of that, right, is that, hey, if you don't pray hard enough, you're, you're screwed. And the funniest uh, thing, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, and just like this idea that like, you know, people all uh, die all the time in senseless tragedies. And, so it's like, well, did those people not pray hard enough, you know? And um, and oftentimes, like these movies, like frame like, like very often these movies, right, which are extremely successful, um, are uh, American films, right? And and I feel like there's this this notion of American exceptionalism that runs through the modern ev- evangelical church and and through these movies that I I just find to be extremely uh, off putting. Um, and well, it, uh, yeah. Dave, not to not to go down the road that gets us lots of hateful emails and too late I, iTunes reviews, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not a it's not a leap to get from that to Donald Trump, who only does nice things to people that do, do nice things for him, right? That it is it is a uh, transactional relationship, and if you believe that God is a transactional relationship, not much of a leap to go, hey, this guy's. The same thing. He's he's worthy of my respect because he treats people the same way. Well, here's what I'll say about that, Jeff. I think the evangelical church like did vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, um, but I do think the reasons behind that are are more complex than um, than what you're getting at there. I think I'm not I'm not yeah. intending to re- reduce their vote to that thing, but I do think that it's you can draw a direct parallel from those two kinds of gripes. I think that's a it's a pretty consistent behavior pattern. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. Um, and to be fair, I, I should also point out, I haven't seen the movie yet. I have not seen Breakthrough. I have not seen Overcomer yet. Uh, mm-hmm. And so maybe when you see the final movie, although, by the way, like Jeff, uh, the, the Breakthrough trailer is extremely similar to A Dog's Way Home <laughs> trailer <laughs> in the sense that it's like basically <laughs> the entire movie is in that trailer. Um, what I found so humorous about the two particular trailers that you showed were that um, it seems as though the filmmakers behind all of these kinds of movies got like a memo that said, you must have diversity in your films. That's why the critics are turning you down. Uh, you know, and exactly. so suddenly these films aren't full of just white people. You've got, you know, people of different sizes and colors and everything, which is like ideally great, but it feels so um, yeah. manipulative. And hey, like, it's working. Okay. Like this, this is the whole reason <laughs> we're doing it. It's even trickling down to the, to the Christian movies. It's awesome. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also think that, what I consider to be a bug is a feature for the people for whom those trailers are targeted. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, I lambast it for showing the end of the movie, but I think those, the, the people that are drawn to films like that and are, and react to marketing like that want a safe experience. They want to be assured that everything's going to work out okay. And that they will leave the theater happy. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. they, they don't, the idea of not knowing how it's all going to turn out isn't uh, attractive to them. Uncertainty a- is a deadly thing. And right. yeah, you don't want that. Well, all. there's that- a lot of uh, a video essay, a few video essays online about faith-based movies like God's Not Dead and that kind of thing and, and, and why they're terrible. And a, a big reason why they're terrible is they're basically sermons 
in movie form. Uh, and they don't deal with any of the – they don't take advantage of what films are capable of, right? And the uh, the moral complexity and the level of emotion that movies are capable of, like a lot of faith-based movies don't take advantage of. Um, but I, I, there's – I don't want people to think that I don't want to watch movies that deal with religion because I think that movies about religion can be great. Yeah, um, First Reformed was fantastic. First Reformed came out in 2018. Fantastic movie that deals with religion. Uh, Silence, the Martin Scorsese movie. Fantastic movie that deals with religion. Um, now, they don't have quite as pat messages as movies like Fireproof and God's Not Dead and probably, I assume, Breakthrough and Overcomer. Um, but I, I think they are much better films and uh, honestly, far more likely to make non-Christians think about religion in a way that is thought-provoking and interesting and critical uh, than these faith-based movies are. So, uh, so anyway, really watching these trailers like completely put me in a terrible mood uh, <laughs> going into into the Spider Verse, and I, I barely recovered. But it's been very rare that I've been hit with a one-two-three punch of awful trailers like that. Yeah. Uh, when I go to see a movie and go, going to kids movies in particular movies aimed towards kids, uh, you see a whole new crop of things that we don't typically see. Uh, one question for you, Dave and Jeff, uh, why don't you guys just stroll in late to the movie? You know, you've got 15 minutes to 20 I minutes. You know, I do that often. Uh, and, and yeah. when I, when I do that, it's mostly when the screening is, uh, sparsely attended enough that I won't disrupt people by walking past them because I always pre-buy my tickets with a specific seat and that right. seat is usually in the center. So I don't want to disrupt a whole row. If if it's a really packed house on an opening night, I will sit and try to make the problem not anybody else's but my own. But I, I have many, many, many times stood outside uh, a theater and gone, we're at the 25 minute mark and we're still yeah. in trailers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. By, by this point, I've pretty much clocked it to uh, to specific change. Uh, and uh, AMC, I believe, is the worst. Like, yeah, 25 minutes uh, usually for every single movie. And if it's a big movie, probably even longer. It's kind of ridiculous how crazy they've gotten. Yeah, it's usually about. Yeah, it's usually they have about yeah 17 to 20 minutes of trailers. Um, I've clocked it pretty well too. <laughs> I uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the show, but uh, I live across the street from a movie theater. I think you have mentioned and, that, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I oftentimes won't leave my house until <laughs> the time that the showing was supposed to start. Like that's Jeff Kanata, I hate you so much. That's I when I the leave same the thing. house. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, same 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 thing. I, I have it timed to like. There's a theater that's um, twenty minutes away from my house. And so uh -huh. I will leave five minutes before showtime begins, knowing yeah. I will get there 15 minutes after showtime. Yeah. Um, and, we'll, so. and I'll stroll in and there'll still be like three more trailers to go. Yeah. You know? Dangerously, you guys. Yeah. 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 And by the way, the reason I was there for the trailers for this movie, Devendra, is uh, I was going with a friend. And so it's weird when you show up. They really got to see the trailers. With a friend. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I've got to get there early enough to see the guy throw popcorn on himself. <laughs> oh, I hate that guy. That guy. Oh my God. I could do a two hour podcast just on that guy and the acting that he's doing. And that well, scene. we, we got to talk about this. Okay. Let's, let's talk about this for what people, for people who don't know. Okay. That, uh, at the beginning of, uh, of any movie in AMC, right. They play this little pre-roll. That's like shows people, a, a racially diverse group of people settling <laughs> in to watch a movie. Right. Yeah. And you uh -huh. see like couples and like getting close and getting ready. And one of them is this white dude who's eating popcorn intently 
when he sees something extremely scary and then throws the popcorn everywhere. Throws now, it on himself. Throws it on himself Let's and all those throw around popcorn, him. folks. Yeah. Like, because that's never happened to you. Come on. Well, here's the thing, guys. <laughs> no, the quality with which he does it is so beautiful. It's like watching in four seconds. It's like watching the room. You know, it's yeah. it's so perfectly beautiful because there is nothing remotely resembling human behavior in what he's doing. It's great. Mm. It's great. I love it. I get perverse satisfaction from watching it every time. It's a great style of acting. I was just sitting through uh, the Resident Evil director's cut on the PlayStation Classic. Terrible console. Don't buy it. Um, but the the style of acting to produce that opening video is just it's something special. I feel like we've lost it uh, as we've moved towards better acting. Um, so, you know, uh, cherish it when you get and you get that little bit of cheesiness. My wife and I will go to the theater and every time we just mimic what's going on on screen with each other, like the couple that hold hands and look at each other dreamily. And I have to think that they cut out the guy throwing popcorn himself because people were mimicking that and getting popcorn all over the theater. Yeah, That's so, at least hey, my theory. So so this, this, uh, yeah, this story has a, a pop, you know, they're, they're not they don't have any problem with that, I'm sure. This story has a, has a terrible twist, as Dan has indicated, uh, which is that uh, Popcorn Guy is now gone. I mean, he is there, but he's no longer throwing the popcorn. That is to say, oh. his most defining characteristic has been stripped from him. <laughs> and uh, when you watch the AMC pre-roll now, Popcorn Guy just stares intently at the screen, no throwing popcorn. I also would like to make it very clear that I have the deepest sympathy for these actors because... There is no doubt in my mind that they got paid about 200 bucks yeah. one, one time for that day <laughs> as non-union actors to come in and do a thing, having no idea it was going to be shown ad infinitum to hundreds of millions <laughs> of people over and over and over again. And they would never see another penny for their – as somebody – For their hard work, yeah. As somebody who literally – at least once a month, sometimes once a week, gets people t tweeting at me pictures of me at the U-Haul, uh, <laughs> on the U-Haul brochure <laughs> for a photo that I was paid about $75 to take and I've been using for 15 years. <laughs> I have a, the deepest of, of empathy for these, for these people. So well, it's, it's a tough and now yeah. half of his role is gone. Yeah. 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 Well, and anyway, does he uh, list on his resume former popcorn guy? <laughs> He's still the popcorn guy. He just doesn't do the popcorn throw. And by the way, I was trying to finish this before you interrupted me, Jeff. But basically, he did. He that was taken out because ushers were getting complaints that he was uh, in, inspiring copycat crimes of, of popcorn throwing, <laughs> right? That too people, good. He's too good at what he does. Yeah, he's too good at what he. People are like, oh, I'm gonna pretend like I'm that guy. And uh, pissing everyone off. So well, I'm the problem. Is what you're saying? Uh, yes, you you are the problem. That's correct, Dan. That's correct. So at least and, Dan realizes that his his little bit isn't uh, isn't original. It's uh, <laughs> it's everybody's <laughs> got the same idea. Yeah, do the little... yeah, yeah. There you go. R.I.P. Uh, popcorn guy. Uh, really is where this is going. Okay, you know, he'll always be in our hearts. <laughs> That's what I've been watching this week. <laughs> Dan Gvosden, what have you been watching? Well, I had the chance to um, attend a Fathom event, uh, those kind of randomly uh, scheduled movie times to see specialty films. And I saw the animated film Mirai, which was recently nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature. 
directed by Mamoru Hosoda. Hosoda. Uh, I've never said his name out loud before, but yeah. now I'm discovering. Hosoda's right. I don't right. know yeah. how to say it. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a story about a little boy named Kun, and uh, he has a he's like what two or three years old, and his little he has a new baby sister that comes home. And it kind of causes him this intense amount of jealousy um, that he begins to act out upon. Um, uh, Devendra, you're familiar with this film? I'm familiar with the movie. Uh, it's something I've been meaning to see because it is all about adorable little kids. And Hosada movies, uh, y- you will cry. Like, he he just pulls the heartstrings so well. I have not seen this one yet, uh, but I'm waiting to get my heart broken with it. Well, uh, I think that is a very real possibility for you um, with this movie. Um, it didn't move me to that level, but the audience around me was definitely tearing up. Um, although I have to say, in classic slash film fashion, this is a Fathom event, and a family waltzed in bringing two of their like under the year of one children into the film who proceeded to talk and make noises and goo-goo noises the whole movie – which was perplexing to me because it's a fathom event, which means like it's a specialty thing. You didn't yeah. just kind of like roll up. They thought it was just cartoons. I mean, because it's a normal ticket price, right? So it's like, oh, cartoons. Sure. Why not? Yeah, that was my my theory. Or they just kind of theater hopped in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they were also brought like a packaged lunch with themselves that they proceeded to crinkle open. Um, but the film, the film is really beautiful. The animation style is gorgeous as with a lot of these kind of modern anime uh, films, I will say um, it's really episodic. um, And I found that really kind of detracted from the pacing of the film. um, And I think ultimately led to me not being as moved as I wanted to have been. Um, It kind of repeats the same formula over and over and over again. And there's no real climax or peaks and valleys. So you're kind of just there watching this kind of uh, fantasy roll out as this young boy is kind of visited in this house of his uh by traveling through time essentially and visiting his all of his relatives and he learns more about his family and his relationship to his sister who comes and visits him from the future it's a whole thing um but it's kind of like every 15 minutes you're meeting a new family member (laughs) and after a while you're like okay i get it um but it's really still really beautiful and i think if you're a big animation fan you'll probably want to see it before the golden globes uh uh roll out all right, cool. That's Mirai, M-I-R-A-I. I've heard it's one of the best films of the year. Uh, it has a mm-hmm. 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, so uh, I am planning on checking it out at some point. Sorry you weren't quite as moved by it as others, but uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts, Dan. I'd still recommend it. Okay, very cool. Um, so that's Mirai. That's what Dan's been watching. How about you, Devendra? Uh, I just blasted through the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and have to say I still love the show. Um, it's definitely the shtick of it, uh, that I love Rachel Brosnahan is hilarious and amazing and just like so great at embodying this young, uh, comedian character. Uh, the, the cast all around is just so damn strong. Um, I love the show. Everything I love from season one is here. Everything I didn't really like about season one is kind of here too. So you kind of take it or leave it. Um, we spend a lot of time with her, um, ex-husband, the one who kind of kicked off this whole, the, the entire like premise of the show. By yeah, I kind of wish we'd her. just leave him behind. You know? I, I kind of wanted to. I think the show is far too. The, it, the show thinks we're more interested in that character than I am. And then most people I know are. Yeah. Um, and it's still also, you know, the it's called the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So this is a show where 
it's really all about winning and she's kind of always winning in a way. Um, I don't really see the struggle as much with her uh, for season one. I kind of, I think the gloss of it, um, the great dialogue, the great characters, the great actors, like kind of maybe overlook it. It's kind of, you know, I think it's becoming clear that that's kind of a thing that maybe the Paladinos just can't get away from with this show. And honestly, it's something they've done with all of their shows in a way to until the point where they, you know, the characters are just kind of too perfect and just super annoying. Uh, for now, it's still really enjoyable. Um, yeah, it's just good all around. It's a good time. And I think um, I'm coming off of a couple other shows that were kind of dark. Uh, I had just finished up Sabrina which is fine on Netflix. Uh, I enjoyed it, but also a character who doesn't really experience many like roadblocks or difficulties. And I think that is more interesting for characters. Uh, there are more historical characters. Uh, she also interacts with in the season. Of course, uh, it's all very cute, very twee, um, but still a lot of fun. So worth checking out for sure. And um, I talked about the second season of Patriot, but while I'm on Amazon shows, you should be watching Patriot. I just can't stop thinking about that show. Cool. That's Marvelous Miss Maisel season two and Patriot season two. Now it's time, Dave, for the game that's sweeping the nation. The <laughs> mm-hmm. new game, mm-hmm. Six Degrees of a Segway. Uh, the Marvelous wow. Mrs. Maisel, of course, uh, stars Tony Shalhoub, who uh, was in Men in Black 2 with... Johnny Knoxville, who has made a whole career about filming a series of unfortunate events. A series of unfortunate events stars Neil Patrick Harris, who was in Starship Troopers with Casper Van Dien, which brings us to Casper, our sponsor, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. I'm clapping, Jeff. Nicely done. Thank you. Ah, Casper, that's right. If you want better sleep... Casper is where you should go. We all have Casper mattresses. Uh, we got them delivered to our homes. Mm-hmm. They come in really cool little packages. You zip them open with an enclosed uh, tool that they give you to zip them open. And then they unfurl like magic in front of you. Uh, and then your sleep is better because uh, these are great mattresses that are designed uh, to mimic human curves, to provide support and comfort for all kinds of bodies. They have uh, a variety of different mattresses for you to choose from. They have the classic, they have the wave, and they have the essential. These are all uh, different price points, different levels of uh, uh, of hardness and comfort, and you have the option to uh, to get the one that best suits you. But I can tell you from experience, all of these are likely to be an upgrade for you because I waited way too long to upgrade my mattress. I'm so glad I finally did. Uh, People agree, with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. And they have affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and sell directly to you. Also, you get 100 nights. There's hassle-free returns. You get 100 nights to make up your your mind. And if you decide after 100 nights or any time in there, you don't want your Casper mattress. They come to your house, they pick it up, they take it away, give your money back. That's pretty cool. That's how confident they are. And uh, there's free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. That's pretty awesome. And you can be sure of your purchase with that 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. You can sleep on it. You can check it out. And we're going to give you $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com filmcast and using filmcast. As your promo code at checkout, that's casper.com slash filmcast and the promo code filmcast for $50 towards select mattresses. Of course, terms and conditions apply. 
All right, before we move on, we got to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Big thanks to Patrick Stover and Mike Lees uh, for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. And also to donors Sam in Brooklyn, New York, Stan Woodard, Xiong Chen, uh, Frank G from Downers Grove, and also Hui Min Chen. Now, uh, I actually want to read an email that accompanied Hui Min Chen's uh, donation. But before I do that, I want to say if you want to support us uh, and help us defray the cost of seeing films, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast to make a one-time donation. You can also go to slash film.com, click on the slash filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, we really appreciate any money you can donate, but never donate if it is in any way a hardship for you. Uh, uh, if you want to support us without spending money, you can always go to wherever your podcasts are consumed and sold and uh, just leave a review for us. Uh, but if you can throw some money our way, we really appreciate it. Okay. Guys, I got to read you this email from Hui Min, who writes into slashfilmcastgmail.com. Coming this December 31st, it will be my the 10th anniversary uh, for my wife, uh, Jui Chun Kao, and me. I came to the States in April 2008 to pursue my PhD degree in UMass, went back to Taiwan to uh, marry my college sweetheart same year over New Year vacation, and then brought her here afterwards. Coincidentally, it's also the 10th year of my journey with podcasts. I got my first iPod Touch for free with a student education deal while purchasing my first MacBook, and my love for podcasts began. In the beginning, I simply intended to use podcasts as a tool to improve my English listening skills. However, with a wider and wider range of programs I subscribe to, podcasts gradually became my gateway to American culture, politics, music, and entertainment. And one day, it just occurred to me, why didn't I look up a few podcasts to talk about my favorite hobby, movies? Yours and Film Spotting were among the first few I found, and actually the only two that I still kept from that time. My first impression was, wow, the theme song is really catchy and uplifting. And more importantly, you guys are really down to earth. Your voices and opinions carry sincerity, warmth, and kindness and are very insightful while often resonate with my own personal thoughts and feelings. It's like hearing a group of old friends that I've never known have a meaningful, in-depth discussion. Love Jeff being honest and passionate and his occasional lighthearted outbursts. Devinger is always thoughtful and well-versed. And astonishingly frequently, David's read on film, uh, film aligns so well with both my wife and my own. Can't say how many hours over the years I've spent uh, during bench work, driving, cooking, or even showering while listening to you guys. Showering is the best time to listen to Slash Filmcast, by the way. It's great. Um, your weekly episodes are always on top of my cues whenever they appear in the podcast app. And one noticeable fact, uh, Slash Film is, in fact, the only podcast that's allowed to be played in the background of our road trips with two fussy kids in the car. And trust me, <laughs> that says a lot about how good Slash Film is. Uh, just a few years ago, my wife also became an enthusiastic listener of yours. We often settled on movies to rent only if they had been reviewed by you or played your latest reviews when driving home fresh out of the theater. All in all, I want to express how much we appreciate all the effort you put into this project and all the joy and entertainment you've brought us. Our, my donation is by no means generous, uh, especially being an avid and loyal listener for so many years. But please allow me to blame it on my mere postdoc salary mortgage and two young kids. Uh, hearing her name called out in Slash Film before our 10th anniversary will be a big surprise to her. Many, many thanks. Um, so that comes in from Hui Min Chen, uh, who is giving a shout-out, 10th anniversary shout-out to his wife, wow. Hui Chun Kao. Wow. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Yeah. The, the, their uh, marriage has basically taken a uh, similar path to the Slash Film cast in the sense that <laughs> it has lasted 10 years. So um, that's Just hope they didn't send the same email to film spotting. You know yeah, what I mean? I mean, that's awkward. That's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to our review of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Man. My name is Peter Parker. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. 
I saved the city, fell in love, then I saved the city again and again and again. Look, I'm a comic book, a serial, I did a Christmas album, and a so-so popsicle. But this isn't about me. Not anymore. Spider-Man swings in once a day, zip-zaps up in his little mask and answers to no one. I love you, moms. Yeah, I know that. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I wanna hear it. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a copy. My name is Miles Morales. I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear the Super Collider? You're gonna love this. Dimension opening now. You're like me. That's impossible. That was from the trailer of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the newest film by Sony Pictures Animation. And guys, I don't know about you, but... I would not have predicted at the beginning of 2018 that we would have two movies by Sony Pictures Animation that would be huge hits set in the Spider-Man universe. Uh, Venom, terrible movie that nonetheless has made over $850 million worldwide. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, great movie that's doing really well in its opening. Uh, So it turns out that uh, maybe Sony has a future with this franchise after all. Uh, I was watching Movie Bob's review of this movie and he was saying how uh, <laughs> just like when you give a like a million t- uh, monkeys a million typewriters and like have them type randomly, eventually you'll produce <laughs> all the works of Shakespeare. You give Sony, you know, ten years, <laughs> and eventually they'll make one decent Spider-Man movie. <laughs> or you let Phil Lord write one. He's like, oh, here you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, By the way. um, uh, the plot summary of this movie reads: Bitten by a radioactive spider in the subway. Brooklyn teenager Miles Morales suddenly develops mysterious powers that transform him into the one and only Spider-Man. When he meets Peter Parker, he realizes there are many others who share his special high-flying talents. Now, Dan Gavazdin, you have uh, studied Spider-Man for, for many years. Uh, and so I, I assume because you have a Spider-Man podcast that you are a fan. And so I have many questions for you about what you think about this movie. And, and one question I actually have for all of you is... Um, how does this movie rank in terms of Spider-Man movies? Like, like, is it number one? Is it number two? Like, which which movies would you rank above or below this one? Um, but also, Dan, how well do you feel Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse captures the spirit of Spider-Man? Well, I think my thoughts would be best summed up in the form of a limerick. Yes! Uh, because David yes! has mandated this. I, I God damn it. Limerick in tow. Uh, the first guest that won't get verbally berated by Dave for not bringing <laughs> a limerick with them. I was so fearful. You know, I, 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 I have heard tales of David's rage. Yeah. So, it's not uh, yeah, I know. Um, uh, well, so here we go. And I will admit uh, this is not the usual form of terrible. This is probably more terrible than that. Uh I I have never written a limerick before. So here we go. Uh, Here it goes. Check out your boy Miles from Brooklyn, who realized webs he could spin. His dimensions in peril, but in graffitied apparel, his adventures as Spider-Man begin. I like it. I like (laughs) it. That was pretty rough. Some pretty strained rhymes in there, Dan. By rough, you mean fantastic. (laughs) I'm only hearing Jeff right now. Dave, you seem yeah. to be going in and out. <laughs> the connection's breaking up. <laughs> I'm hearing some static. Um, 
Uh, well, thank you for sharing whatever that was, Dan. Uh, what are your, <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the thoughts praise. thoughts on the film? <laughs> uh, I love this film. Uh, I can't believe that this film exists. Like, as a young child, you know, reading Spider-Man comics, of which I own every single one, if that's – I don't know if that's something to claim uh, proudly, uh, but uh, I would lie to people and say that I had heard – word that they were making an animated spider-man film i wanted it so bad that i would i I thought if i lied about it into existence that might actually work wait okay so you you would literally delude yourself into thinking that there was an animated spider-man and and like like how would the conversation go down like let's say i'm a random person you're you're talking to about it would be it would be something like you know hey david i was you know uh reading the you know blank blank newspaper the other day and i heard word that they are going to be making an animated spider-man movie and at the time i think i would have said like with venom and carnage in it um because wow. it was the 90s well this is and, why you can never trust uh, the blankety blank times which is what you were reading it sounds like hey, of course fake news yeah. yeah hey dave i i think this puts the lie to uh, all of your thoughts about the faith-based movies because uh, he's he lived one. He just, believed, believed <laughs> he just spoke it, enough. and it came into existence. And it yeah. happened. Yeah. yeah, apparently it was one of those things. I was like, you know, young enough to think, like, God, if I just keep saying it, like, maybe someone will hear it, or some way, like, this prayer will be answered, like you're saying. Um, and like, I do now. I feel like all of those lies were worth it. You know, like <laughs> here is this movie. Clearly, I willed it into existence, and like, I, I this movie is better than I could have ever imagined. Uh, a movie like this being it is uh it's hard for me even to be truly um to to even truly put together my thoughts about it i have relationships with a lot of the artists and writers whose work this is heavily based off of you know i i have spent so much time with so much of this material as my piece in the hollywood reporter probably reflects um that like seeing this movie, I, I, it was like a movie made specifically for one person, and that person was me. There are jokes in this that I can't imagine more than a handful of people truly are understanding. Um, so, like, I love this film. It's my favorite Spider-Man film. Um, I think previously that was Spider-Man Two, which I considered a perfect adaptation of the first 120 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But this is like everything about the appeal of the character and more in, in, in a film. And, um, and I found it really just on that level, really thrilling, but beyond that, it's a fantastic movie, an incredible step forward for American animation. Um, there's just so much to say about this movie. I can't wait to talk to you guys about it. Um, I think it's my favorite superhero movie period. Wow. Uh, like uh, over all Marvel stuff, like uh, over Blade, Spawn, like any of those movies, like it's it's number one in your book. Maybe yes? Spawn. I don't know. Dave yeah. has missed like 20 years of pop culture somehow. Um, <laughs> Nothing uh, happened between Blade and uh, Avengers Infinity War, right? So, um, yeah, no, I mean, the thing about it is like this movie feels so um, unapologetic about being like related to comics there's no shame here and no desire to be like a higher art than comics you know it's right. it's it's not trying to put a caveat on this you know we don't have like the ant-man movie where you know uh, the falcon or has to show up and 
and justify, oh, it's a part of this universe. It doesn't care about any of that. It just goes after what's cool and knows that audiences are going to roll with it. And I found that so liberating, and it, it's so free to be weird in the way that Marvel has never really seized upon until maybe like Thor Ragnarok, you know. But we've got these big battle sequences in airport, you know, facilities. Like this is doing something completely different, and I think it it changes the game for comic book movies. I don't know how successful it's going to be ultimately, but like it makes everything else seem stale by comparison. And, um, and I, I don't know how, like, uh, like how the, the movie of or the genre of comic book movies will change, uh, after this movie. And I, I hope they do a little bit. We should point out the article that you're referencing, by the way, that you wrote for Hollywood Reporter is uh, is entitled A Definitive List of Spider-Man e- Into the Spider-Verse Easter Eggs. Uh, and it's a great article. Uh, it reads like it was written by um, the serial killer in Seven. Uh, with like, but without Thanks. without the ki- without the killing, like it's like you know how that guy had like a thousand notebooks, and there's a scene in that movie where they're like, well, we could have like eighteen men reading in shifts, and it would take like ten years to like get to to, to like read all these notebooks. It feels like you did that much research to write this article, um, and it is truly impressive amount of de- like I, I just my mind could not comprehend how you picked up on all this stuff. Well, D- Dave, uh, that's not research. That's his life. <laughs> there you go. He's just he's just referencing memories. That's, he's not even yes. do, he's not even researching at all. Are you uh, joking? I, will I would say guess most, that's true. Most of it was off the top of my head, and uh, I only I got, I wrote most of it off of one screening of the film. Yeah, that's what's amazing is that you only saw it once and you wrote this whole thing. I was really impressed. So I went back a second time to like double check some theories I had because some of this stuff was so niche like one of the costumes that appears in the film like that's like something that i couldn't imagine that anybody even knew about because the rest of the costumes were so uh like i guess like featured in video games over the years they, they've they been things that have popped up but there are some truly obscure things in this movie that they must have like i'm not even sure the filmmakers know how obscure they are Right. Uh, and you, you do point to something that I think is kind of interesting, which is the benefits of Marvel not owning all the Marvel characters, um, which is if Marvel had – if the rights had reverted back to them, uh, we might not have ever gotten this movie, right? And we already have seen what the Marvel version of this movie would be. It is Spider-Man Homecoming, which I think many people regard to be an inferior movie to this. Um, so, uh, think of like, you know, Logan, Venom, in, Into the Spider-Verse. These are movies that probably never would have existed if Marvel had gotten all the rights back to all its, its characters and, uh, or Deadpool even, right? Yeah. And maybe competition uh, people, is good. Yeah. You know? Maybe the competition is good. Jeff Kanata, um, you have been an undead, uh, Marvel fan for quite a while is what I've been <clears> told. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I guess I would have to say that my feelings could best be summed up. <laughs> In the form of two limericks. What? Oh, oh, man. what? This movie, this movie is so good it needs two. Are you guys ready? Okay. Hit me. Here we go. Hit me, Jeff. First one. Hit me. This movie is so great it's worth praising. The animation style is bar-raising. The best way the best way to describe it is how Spidey Scribes did. Ultimate, spectacular, and amazing. Wow. Yeah, I'm I mean, cr- that's not bad. Not That's bad, pretty Jeff. good. Solid. Solid. All right. Uh, limerick number two. Ready? 
Like a present from Santa's sleigh sack, it delivers. In fact, I'd say that it will lead to creation of a new generation of diverse Marvel zombies from way back. Nice. I was oh, like, wow, sack uh, is a rhyme that you, you rhyme sack with that, I think. Slay sack with say that. Mm. That's what I did. That's, that's, uh, a, that's a, in a, what we call an approximate rhyme in the industry. Yeah. Jeff, um, I, I, I am laying down my crown. <laughs> well, I'm here to uh, basically just underscore everything you just said about the movie because uh, you did you, you summed up so much of what I feel. And uh, it is you said it's it's a movie that doesn't feel shame about its its comic bookness. I would go even farther. I would say it's a love letter to comic books. It yeah. embraces the form and the style on a such a fundamental level. And as you said, the animation itself is a leap, is a leap. It's a leap in imagination. It's a leap in style. It, it, you know, I've heard people say that this is the most important animation progression since the first Toy Story. It really is doing something different for the first time. Toy, Toy Story did a thing, and that became how 3D animated movies were. And then all of a sudden, 3D animated movies were the only kind of animation you got because hand-drawn animation died. And then DreamWorks was doing it and all these other places were doing it, but they all were sort of aping that one style and doing a very conventional style of animation, which is beautiful and fun in its own way. But even movies uh, that that were, were um, conceptually cool and interesting didn't really do anything differently with the fundamental animation style. And... I think it's it's worth repeating how bold, how fresh feeling this movie is just on a pure style level. Uh, before you even get to the story, it is doing things that use the comic book form, the way it's colored, the way it has texture, the way it looks like, you know, when they zoom in on moments, it, it, it looks like there are little dots that you would find from a printer that from the 60s and 70s in, in comics, they don't even have anymore, but the way the off printing as well. Yes. Uh, and thought balloons and, and all of the iconography of comic books is embraced. But the way action is presented and shot, the way uh, characters move, it, it seemed to me, I could be wrong about this, but it seemed to me that they were doing something very similar to what Lord and Miller did with the Lego movie, where they were taking frames out to make the mm -hmm. animation look a little messier and more herky-jerky, which created this sense of, uh, you know, that <laughs> in front of every Marvel movie, there used to be that that Marvel logo where they would start flipping through a comic book and then the the frequency of the pages flipping turned into animation. It almost harkens back to that idea of like these pages are really coming to life. And I, I just found the pure animation to be so laudable and so such a a huge moment for cinema, for for comic book cinema. And then you get a story, I think, that is bold and interesting and uh, embraces this new character, Miles Morales, that is relatively new. I mean, he was introduced in the 90s um, by Brian Bendis and Sarah Pacelli. And really, I remember, I tweeted this out after I saw the film. I, I remember reading the first Miles Morales Spider-Man comic book and thinking, this is special. This is a moment that could really be important for a lot of people. And the message of this movie is so 
powerful and so important, and it's going to resonate for a little kid the way Spider-Man comics resonated for me when I was five and six years old. There's going to be a five and a six-year-old that's going to see themselves on that screen. That's going to, it's going to spark their imagination in new and different ways that the Marvel live-action films don't. And it's fun and funny, and as you said, Dan, it it embraces the wackiness and the goofiness of comic books in a way that we haven't really seen. Uh, it it isn't afraid to be dumb, you know, and the ideas, the audacity of the goofy ideas on display and that it can pull it off and make something that's super cool and super fun and heartfelt and meaningful. It is a very special movie and one that I adore. And like you, Dan, kind of can't believe exists. It just feels so improbable. You know, it, it is, uh, it's an amazing, spectacular web of experience. Very cool. Uh, Devinder Hardware, your thoughts on this movie? I do feel like this episode is just going to be <laughs> pretty repetitive. Uh, <laughs> because, yeah, I love this movie for everything you guys said. Um, specifically, I want to call out the animation style, too. Uh, Jeff, yeah, you, you notice like it looks a little different, right? Um, I read that they're animating on twos instead of every single frame. So it looks like a 12 FPS, uh, you know, older cartoon, basically. And I think that look is really interesting. Um, I wonder if kids like kids watching it even notice that something is different or maybe get annoyed that it's kind of wrong. Uh, but it adds such a nice texture to what you're actually seeing uh, compared to a lot of CG, which is just super smooth, maybe a little too clean. Um, honestly, like aesthetically, I, I'm a huge fan of animation, but when animation is done badly, it's a thing that could turn me off instantly. Um, that's part of the reason I haven't seen any of those CG Star Wars shows as great as I hear they are. Uh, because they look awful and Disney gave no budget to those things. And it's just really simplistic character designs, really simple animation. None of that is here. This is a movie that is unabashedly a comic book movie. I think more so than um, maybe the last one was Ang Lee's Hulk, which didn't really get enough credit for what it was at the time. Uh, maybe trying to combine that into live action just wasn't the way to do it. The key is animation. The key is drawing and a kind of a 2d sense of things, I guess. Um, so yeah, this movie looks amazing. It sounds great too. Great soundtrack, great score. Daniel Pemberton back again. Uh, the cast of this movie, I don't just look at the IMDb page. Uh, I, I don't think it reveals any spoilers, but it's an insane cast. Okay. Like, um, and it's all people I really love too. Shamik Moore plays Miles Morales. He was in the, uh, the get down on Netflix, which nobody saw, but he was in a fan. He was a fantastic character there. I believe he was the lead in dope too. Uh, Jake Johnson from the new girl, Haley Steinfeld, Mahershala Ali, Brian Tyree, Henry, Lily Tomlin, Lily Zoe Tomlin. Kravitz, <laughs> so good. John Mulaney, Nicholas Cage, Liam Schreiber, Chris Pine. This movie does everything right. It's insane how much talent is behind it. Um, and yeah, overall too, like it's great to see the Miles Morales story finally told in a good way. Um, we got a glimpse of him in the PS4 game this year. Um, I didn't, I haven't finished that yet, so I don't know how far that gets into things. Um, but it's great that this character is just getting more coverage as well. I think it's a really interesting interpretation of the, you know, of the Spider-Man story. And I love that we, we just get all these other versions of Spider-Man. I'm not a huge follower of the comics, uh, but I love everything I'm seeing here. Um, I can only imagine the audacity of doing Spider-Ham, the audacity yeah. of doing, you know, Spider-Man noir. And the genius of casting Nicolas Cage, because every single line he says in this movie is gold. 
pure gold. And then, of course, we have the anime-inspired Spider-Girl thing, too. And that's there's just so much going on. Yeah, and I thought, they all I thought you'd really appreciate that, Devendra. It's it's so good. It's hilarious. Like just great little anime humor there. Uh, but but, but also, it was not just like an anime version of Spider Man. It was like right. the, a robot, like Diva in um in Overwatch. Very you know specific. what I mean? Like, but also, but also you you got to get a bit of anime in there. So she has a telepathic link to her spider, and it, it's this whole like convoluted anime <laughs> right. backstory. It's amazing. It, it, it's somebody who like has more than a passing interest in anime. You know, like yeah, it's they it's, did it's their so homework smart. on that. It's a, they did their homework for everything in this movie. But in particular, I just love all these characters we see because. Because they all rep- represent um, different styles of animation. Uh, the genius of this movie is figuring out a way to make Spider-Ham work and be like a silly Looney Tunes character while also existing in the same world as Spider-Man Noir. And like with all the serious stuff happening with Miles Morales, too. Uh, it's insane. This movie is a miracle. Uh, all right. I want to read the Apple Music uh, description of the soundtrack. For Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, <laughs> I've seen this. It says here, there was nothing necessarily wrong with the soundtrack to 2002's Tobey Maguire starring Spider-Man, but surveying it 16 years later, there is something awfully homogenous about its lineup. <laughs> Some 41, Nickelback's Chad Kroger, Theory of a Dead Man, Aerosmith, Pete Yorn. So it uh-huh. makes sense that the animated Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which features multiple cross-racial, cross-gender, cross-generational, cross-dimensional characters with Spidey powers, has a soundtrack that really upends the franchise's own long-established aesthetic and cultural <laughs> awareness. They, they got is, singers from other dimensions. It's amazing. It's a very, it's a very, very. Uh, I, I mean, it's not even a backhanded compliment. It's just basically putting down <laughs> the old one. Yeah. Uh, and which I mean, come on, you know. I mean, it's first fun. of all, I think the soundtrack to the new one is excellent, and I think it's incredible. What this movie does is it it democratizes it, it democratizes Spider Man, right? It's it basically says anyone can be Spider Man, like anyone can wear the mask, um, but you know, it, obviously, it requires something more that you have to have this leap of faith. But like that, uh, as you said, Jeff, very very beautifully, like anyone can like imagine, like it, it is now that much easier for anyone to imagine themselves. Uh, in that role and and the idea of the multiverse being a real thing it, it's it's kind of a really ingenious concept it's like it's like that theory that uh you know it's like one of those big fan theories right it's like a fan theory come to life it's like uh oh yeah. james yeah. bond uh, james bond is actually like different dudes being the same kind it's like uh you know it's it's different people and they die and then they're replaced by new james bonds and like the, all the james bonds actually happen on one continuous timeline you know, or all the Toy Story movies, all the Pixar movies take place in one universe, you know, like that kind of stuff. The idea of the multiverse is that level of uh, both insane and kind of interesting, which is, hey, all those different Spider-Mans that we ever wrote about, what if they actually all existed in one, you know, um, multiverse, one shared multiverse where, like, they, they're they're living parallel lives? Uh, and... It's it's a bold idea that's brought to life wonderfully. You guys have been talking about the animation. I mean, I think the the but look can, of it. You, sorry, go before you go on, I, I, and hold that thought. I don't want to miss it, but I I, I want to say something about what you just said because I think it's it it deserves even more discussion because mm-hmm. I it, first of all Dan Slott wrote sort of had that original concept uh, and and did a brilliant Spider Verse like comic book storyline. So kudos to him. But I think. Ultimately, it's it it comes from Brian Bendis's introduction of Myers, Miles Morales, 
And it occurs to me what this movie is doing and what Venice was doing back in the day is exactly the same thing that The Last Jedi did to the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many of the pissed off fanboys of, of that franchise are going to go to this and love it and not realize yeah. that it's the same damn thing saying, hey, anybody, screw your chosen one mythology. Anyone can wear the mask. Anyone can be a Jedi. The world well, is also bigger. also this movie. Uh, we'll talk more when we get to spoilers. But, you know, people die. Certain people die pretty mm-hmm. early on in this yeah. movie. And I, I could see the Last Jedi fanboys just like freaking out. Already, and, just, like, yeah. And the introduction of Miles Morales was a direct response to people saying Donald Glover can't be can't be Spider-Man, not my right, Spider-Man. Right, and then right. Bendis went, OK, I guess I make one. And he thought to himself. I mean, this is what he has said in interviews. He thought to himself, I don't think that the reason that there's a full mask is because anybody can be behind it. It it, Mm -hmm. The mask itself is important. And uh, I love that this movie gives that message. I love that message Mm -hmm. in general. I hated, you know, when Star Wars went further down the rabbit hole of midichlorians and you have to be the super special chosen one. I think that is for me, a much more empowering, much more uh, childlike fantasy in my fantasy films that, you know, we can all aspire to be heroes. We can all aspire to do what's right with great power comes great responsibility, but it isn't because the great power is bequeathed to you by birthright. It's we all have different power in our lives and we all have different responsibility. And that's the, that to me is what Spider-Man has always been and should always be. And I love that this movie is sort of, you know, uh, the spoonful of sugar of that, that the broccoli of that message, you know, don't forget that the, uh, those other Spider-Man movies, the Andrew Garfield ones were totally going down that path. Right. Of yeah. like you being yeah. like your parents planned this. Yeah, this was always meant to be. Right. And that that was just such garbage. I'm so <laughs> glad we just like uh, it's like we all collectively decided we're just going to pretend those movies never happened. Right. <laughs> like we're, we're just going to move on. Cool. Cool. Everyone. Cool. All right. Yeah. Um, Because that's basically what it is. And the thing about Spider-Man, too, is that he's a character. Um, Yeah. Peter Parker was never a destined hero. He was always the kid who stumbled into this thing. And right. didn't know how to deal with it, and had to learn how to be the hero in a way. And I, I know that's pretty common for superheroes, but I think the every man and every person aspect of Peter Parker was always there. That was always such a core part of him. Now they just made it, you know, very, very bold, very bold text, uh, just to make it all very clear to everybody. And can I say about Miles? One of the most interesting things in this movie is where it starts off. We are introduced to Miles and his family. And even in his family and as he explores Brooklyn, Miles is code switching with everybody that he talks Mm -hmm. to. As he walks down the street, like he slowly changes the way he's talking. It's amazing. Right. So from his old school to his new school, his mother, his father. And so he's the perfect fulcrum for this whole multidimensional story. Like he is this adaptable person. And, you know, ultimately the the lesson he's learning, and I don't want to spoil it, is like to – Again, just assert his ownness, you know, his own selfness, mm-hmm. like do it his own way kind of thing. And it's 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 all wrapped up in all of these things you're saying. Uh, and and I could think of no more perfect person than this interpretation of Miles, which I think is the best interpretation of Miles. And I think that's true of every character in this movie. It's the best interpretation of them in any medium. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what makes it so wonderful. It's like, hey, here's the best Peter Parker you've ever seen. Like that's just you know, like how could you 
how could you not love that? And 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 another another comparison I'll make to the Last Jedi is everybody you know got butt hurt about this is not my Luke Skywalker. It's a different Luke Skywalker. Nowhere in this movie is quote unquote your Peter Parker. It's they're all every Peter Parker you see in this movie is slightly different than anybody you've ever seen before. Uh And I love that this movie is not even going to give you the sort of traditional Peter Parker at any point. There are variations on a theme. He's He's Jewish. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, no, I think we do. We get the definitive Peter Parker at one point, but that's some spoiler talk. Uh, I will say the other thing, we get Sam Raimi's Peter Parker, which I love. I love that we can never, we cannot just forget those movies. These aren't the Andrew Garfield movies. We will always remember the Upside Down Kiss. Yeah, we'll it, it's, it's pretty amazing that, yeah, the, so good. The, the Raimi movies are canonical in this world, but no <laughs> and, mention. And the PS4 game, too. Yeah. Yeah, but no mention of the Amazing Spider-Man films at all. Uh, this, we, by the way, <laughs> is cultural impact. Like, this is a thing trickling down time and something we remember. We remember the flick of, like, a car approaching like uh, reflected in mary jane's eyes and spider-man doing something about it we remember the train stopping the train like oh man i I, i'm just thinking like sam raimi must be cackling right now there's even the great spider-man 3 reference here and done in a great way yeah yeah. if venom wasn't successful like as as successful as it is which is shocking to me um and (laughs) And most people i think um i would have said to them like this is absolutely sony your right play right you mm-hmm. get to memorialize your old famous series and say our spider-man still counts and you get to do this new bold animation thing where you don't have to worry about it crossing over with the mcu and no one will mistake it for the mcu and they can kind of do their own thing there and and, and own that and and i'm I, I hope this makes more money than it seems set to make because it really seems like the smart play by Sony to really just kind of let their Spider-Man universe be this. I just want to say one other thing, and then we can move into spoilers. Sure. Is, uh, sorry. Uh, which is that uh, I think the, uh, the animation style, you guys have talked about it, but I, I think this movie makes a lot of non obvious choices about mm-hmm. how to transfer comic book into animation. Right. Like, and they actually use a bunch of different tricks. If you see, right. Sometimes it's literally, uh, comic book panels on a physical comic book page. Sometimes that's what they do. Um, other times, the, like the panel, like it's like the screen is the comic book page, and they're right. and they're animating panels into it. Like panels and appear, yeah, in a certain rhythm, the panels. right? Yeah, and um, and it just is like, wow, this is like the perfect realization of that idea because you could make a budget, you could like have the panels fade in slowly, you could have, you know, you could uh, you could do a bunch of different things, but this movie felt like it struck a really good balance between all the different ways it could do that. Let's get to spoilers for Into the Spider Verse. But first, David, we must thank our sponsor, uh, and we can get there very quickly. Uh, we only need two two degrees of separation. Uh, Into the Spider Verse has the Green Goblin. Uh, what if the Green Goblin could cook? He'd be the Green Chef. Green ah, Chef nice. is our oh, sponsor. Green <laughs> Chef. Uh, I love the fact that uh, that I can cook at home and I can get away from all of the pain points of cooking at home. I hated, I never was somebody that cooked for myself. I never was somebody that would cook for my family because I hated trying to figure out what to cook. I hated uh, going to the store and getting all the ingredients. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company 
that includes everything you need to easily cook delicious meals that you can feel good about. The quick recipes, they're easy. They got step-by-step instructions, chef tips, photos to guide you along. Everything you need is hand-picked, delivered right to your door. You don't have to go to the store and get the ingredients. The ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and almost completely prepped. It's it's crazy. And the cool thing about Green Chef is, is Green Chef is that they have meal plans for every type of diet. So you have paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, and carnivore. You're going to be able to eat happily. You're going to be able to cook for yourself. You're going to be able to know that the ingredients are are good, <laughs> that, they're, that they are, are uh, organic, and you're going to love what you put in your body because you know, you watch it, you're doing it. Uh, these are dinners that are planned around your life, not the other way around. It's great. So for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash filmcast. That's greenchef.us slash filmcast for $50 off your first box. Give it a try. I love it. You should try it. All right, let's get to spoilers for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. By the way, I want to point out, I accidentally left out one of our contributors who actually wrote a limerick with his contribution. Mike in Minneapolis uh, donated to the Slash Filmcast this week, and he wrote this limerick, which I will now read to you. There are men who review. They say, see the great interlude. It was rather cohere. The recommendation's not always clear. They couldn't say no to the allude. <laughs> Four really, great limericks really in one episode. Is I, I mean, I, I don't really know what's going on there, but <laughs> I, mean, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> he also gave us money, though, right? So that's right. Uh, okay. I, that's okay. the best limerick I've ever heard. <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's true. Also, I've people, give people you guys really, um, really taking like a lot of liberties, Jeff, with um, some of the uh, syllable counts on these limericks. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> me, me or them. Uh, I, I mean, I think not, everyone, not ev- everyone's taken some, some syllable, uh, liberties, not this week, Jeff, but you know, sometimes I, I see you go a little wild with those syllables. How dare you? How dare you? I okay. think honestly, to be quite <laughs> frank, Dave, I think, uh, there are a lot of people who don't know what a limerick is to be, to be quite honest with mm. you. Uh, and they think it's just, it's just the rhyme, rhyme, other rhyme, rhyme. And, but there is very strict, yes. uh, syllable count. Restrictions and people should look up what a limerick is if you if you don't have it fresh in your mind. Yes, uh, it, it is. It is an anapestic meter, mm-hmm. uh, is what it, it should be, and people should uh, educate themselves. Okay. Anyway, Dank Voss, let me ask you this: You wrote a a definitive list of all the Easter eggs in Spider Man. What was your favorite one? Oh gosh, um, it's quite a list. I mean, I'll say the most obscure one is um, when they go into the. I'm dubbing it the Spider Cave. Um, in Aunt May's backyard in Forest Hills, uh, they go down the elevator. You can see all the costumes, and mm. all the way on the left is a completely red costume. <laughs> and even I did not know this because 
it, it is so obscure. And I have this poster in my classroom because I'm a teacher and it has this costume on it, which is the only way I would have known it. And it is from one issue from this comic called Exiles Number 12, where they go to another dimension and there is a Peter Parker wearing the Carnage symbiote who is a mass killer who can break the fourth wall who dies in that issue. Uh, and it's called The Spider. And I would never have known it, but I, I managed to track it down and figure out exactly what it is. That is pretty hardcore. I mean, I'm impressed, A, that they put it in the movie, and B, that you figured out what the hell it was. So, uh, good reference. But he, let me tell you, I saw the movie twice, and uh, my favorite mo- my favorite moment from the movie, this is such a, I mean, not favorite, but like, I really enjoyed this moment the second time around, which is, um, there's, this, there's a scene when they're breaking into the lab, right? Alchemax, I think is what it's called. And yes. uh, the Jake Johnson version of Spider-Man is, is describing... Um, uh, his plan, you know, he's like, step one, do this step three. And then it's like, oh, actually, the scientist is that lady with the bike. And he's like, oh, step three, revisit my personal biases. Yeah, uh, which <laughs> perfect, is really funny. perfect. And then at the end of it, he says, uh, you know, step six or whatever, grab a bagel. And uh, so later on, they actually like when they're wrapping up the mission, they're leaving Alchemax. He actually takes a bagel from the uh, from the lunchroom. And Miles, I think Miles or uh, Peter Parker throws the bagel at a scientist, right? Before they're about to leave. And when it hits the scientist, it's this bagel. It's this bagel. It's this bagel. Like, <laughs> bagel sound effect. It's like a bagel oh, yeah. sound effect, just this bagel. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it's there for like half a second. Um, so great. But so awesome. it's just like this movie is packed with so many little like visual gags like that. I think I think oh. the last time we saw something like that was like Scott Pilgrim. Mm, that yes. w- was so great with its like visual design and really harkening back to video games and comics and a lot of things. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that scene is great too, by the way, because I love how they're just strolling through the cafeteria of scientists and they're like, "Oh, that's Spider Man!" All the scientists pull out guns because, <laughs> of course, they're evil scientists. So yes, right. why not? <laughs> so David, I do have an answer to your question. My favorite one, and that is uh, what on my list. It's called the Isotopic Genome Accelerator. <laughs> Um, and that is the name of the device that irradiates the spider that, uh, bites Peter Parker in the comics, um, and turns him ultimately into Spider-Man, of course. Um, in, in the comics, you know, uh, which has never been portrayed quite the same in the movies, it's these two kind of like ball devices that shoot radiation between them and a spider descends in between the beam of radiation. Right. And in this movie, literally the whole movie is kicked off by the same thing happening, which is a giant version of that Mm. blasting lasers at each other and the spider descends into it and all of the other spiders come out of it essentially. So they've taken this like mini drama and enlarged it into this larger than life scale thing. And uh, I mean, there's no way it's an accident. It is literally like uh, the exact moment just on a huge scale. Right. Like the the visual structure of the device is the same. Right. Um, so now that we're in spoilers, there is one. So I, I do have one very minor issue with this movie, which is that, like, I thought the moment when Miles kind of gets the suit and he like dives down into the city and becomes Spider-Man for the first time is like extremely powerful. And you hear the uh, "What's Up, Danger" song combined with Daniel Pemberton's score, like they've like right. fused together for the first time, and it's yeah, it's incredibly beautiful rousing moment 
But I gotta say that I felt like, you know, I've seen the movie twice at this point. I was like really trying to pay attention. Like maybe I missed it the first time. I felt like Miles' arc was a little bit underdeveloped in this film. Mm -hmm. I I feel like they're doing so much with like introducing all these Spider-Men. And um, I love how... Uh, at, at the beginning, every in, in beginning, you know, it's like you see the comic book like fall onto the the screen, and it's like you know, let's go through this again. Uh, you know, I I've been Spider Man for like six years, and da da da, and they run through the entire history, so you kind of get us. I thought it was really beautifully done, but there's just so much content to get through, introducing everyone, having this meta, like so many characters. I felt like this whole idea of Miles is like he's torn about himself, like he he doesn't know who he wants to be. The relationship with his father and that being like critical to his uh, actualization um, just felt like there. W- I just needed like ten to twenty percent more there for me to really feel that yeah, in the way that yeah. I thought I, 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 the movie wanted me to. I think the um, movie could have benefited from being longer for sure, but yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm taking this sort of like uh, this is the you know new hope of this generation of stories and you look at what happens you know with luke skywalker from being lowly farm boy to being somebody who saves the planet or i guess saves the galaxy and helps to you know win a major war battle um i i feel like we didn't get that much development with him in that movie but you have the reluctant hero moment you have the discovery moments and those are all yeah it just feels very here. compressed right like like yeah, literally he has yeah. that scene with peter parker where they you know it's like hey i'm peter parker like ties him up Right. Mm-hmm. With webs. And then his dad visits him at the thing. And then like literally the scene after that, he's like, well, I'm ready yeah. to be Spider-Man now. Like, it always I, I just feels a little, a little bit but compressed. In order yeah. to, yeah. you know, in order to escape those webs, he sort of has to yeah. come to terms with, you know, how he, you know, how, how he act, activates his powers and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I didn't I, have I, that problem. I got to push back, too, because I, I, I think it's really motivated by the death of his uncle who tells him, you know, like, you're the best of us keep going you know in, in yeah. the moment prior to that and it's he's he's at the lowest point he he can't join his friends to go and 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 fight uh you know against the kingpin and dr octopus he his father is coming to him and telling him like there's a distance growing between us and i don't want to lose you too his uncle has died and he's yeah, framed yeah. for it like to me it's the moment where he's up against the wall he literally can't move and he's just all he has left is to make that choice, like the leap of faith. And like, I've heard people complain that, oh, he suddenly is really good at being Spider-Man and swinging around the city and stuff. But like, I think that's like, at least for me, thematically, that's how it works. It's like, Mm -hmm. once you take that leap of faith, like, we saw him learn how to web swing, you know, he knows how to do that. Now he's just getting slightly better. Um, And and I found that leap of faith thing so powerful. I have to admit, I saw it again today for the third time. And I cried like ugly crying through my 3D glasses through <laughs> much of this movie. And like it's because like I feel like all of the emotional beats are set up and, and, and are paid off. There's not a wasted mm-hmm. second of this movie. And um oh my god, what was I gonna say? <laughs> um and and the particularly the the leap of faith thing is so brilliantly set up in the Spider-Man that we meet at the beginning of the movie. Um, you see two different versions of the same guy, one whose leap of faith has rewarded him beyond your wildest imagination, and another whose leap of faith has left him kind of destitute in the face of terror and not like living up to his like uh, like his beliefs that he's imposing on other people. And like to me, like 
it, it's a brilliant thing about like Spider-Man, which is right. He can be anybody, but it's all about how the choices right. you make, none of them are ever the right thing. Uh, there's no pleasing everyone. And, and to set it up with those two characters and then have miles respond to that to me really worked. Mm-hmm. Okay, I kind of love that this movie, uh, definitely wasn't afraid of making the case that, um, being Spider-Man, being a spider person sucks like that, that leap <laughs> yeah. of faith, that low moment, everyone has lost somebody close to them. Like they all have had to deal with that loss. They've had to deal with the responsibility of having this power and trying to figure out what to do with it. And that's some heavy stuff for what's ostensibly a kid's movie. Um, I, I'm really impressed. Like this, this movie explores the idea of superherodom and the cost of it much better. than I think most of the Marvel movies too. Yeah. There's this idea of yeah. burnout. There's this idea of, Hey, like sometimes it can cost you personal relationships mm-hmm. in a really significant way. And, uh, but fundamentally, the message is hopeful, right? And, uh, you know, I, I really got um, uh, really teared up a little bit at the end with the Stan Lee tribute, right? And this oh, idea, yeah. Beautiful. This idea that uh, that by reading comics like this, right, by watching movies like this and, and understanding, like, the spirit of Spider-Man, uh, mm-hmm. that people who try to do good in the world uh, feel slightly less alone. Right. Perhaps and, the best Stanley cameo too. I yeah, think. it's and a very good Stanley cameo. So good. Is even you know, put it put an even more poignant tip on mm-hmm. it. You know, it, yeah. it is uh, it is very powerful. And and see him animated, but hear his voice. It's yeah, it's pretty pretty special. Yeah, you uh, all work in the entertainment industry in some regard, and, and and part of doing that is purely a leap of faith, right? There's no proven path to success in in what any of you do. And I would consider myself, you know, a part of that. And, uh, you know, my, just be personal. My wife and I are, you know, actively going through the discussions about like whether or not, you know, we want to have a child, Mm -hmm. uh, in the world that we're in for all the usual reasons. And so like watching this movie, I just felt like, God, this movie was made like just for me in that regard too. Like (laughs) that Peter is struggling with this very thing. And I got it like the bit where miles is holding him over yes. the precipice Jeez. and you know and reasserts the message back i mean I, I i came home and i after seeing the movie today i had a conversation with my wife saying like uh, this in this movie you know through fi- only through fiction can we find clarity about things in our lives in ways other people might not be able to put it mm-hmm. and just the whole idea of the leap of faith and and accepting it and not knowing was really powerful me to enough to really kind of change my mind on where i was going because people mm-hmm. i don't know you both two of you have kids now people tell you like you're never going to be ready you know you just got to go for it and that sounds like a truck is going to come hit you oh yeah um, no no a truck know, which, by the way is accurate you. yeah <laughs> truck yeah, hits yeah you. it's accurate but this is such a positive spin on that and made me feel so good. And, and, you know, and I know it's kind of maybe a cheap praise to say that like entertaining movie makes you feel good. And that's like what makes it so great, you know, but like, God, uh, I haven't felt this kind of uplift in a movie in so Mm -hmm. long. Uh, It puts a little hope into the world. And I think the best pop culture can do that. Although, uh, Dan, I'd also highly recommend you watch first reformed. Uh, as you're having it. this discussion yeah yeah that it. movie that that's a little rough like but, that gives you the other side of things but i think you need both you kind of need that pessimism and you need this hopefulness this optimism to really uh, uh i don't know have a well, have let a me have this for live. the time being exactly <laughs> it's another exactly. it's another point of comparison for me for the last jedi and, and i had the mm-hmm. same feeling coming out of that movie of like this feeling that fantasy is important these stories are important 
mythology can actually inform your life and give you hope and make you think that mm. there is a common humanity that we can all share. Uh, and, and I, I walked out of the last Jedi feeling that I walked out of this movie feeling that it's an yeah. all too rare experience, especially in today's world. But you know, I think you hit the nail on the head for me, Dan, when you said that sometimes fiction can tell greater truth. And, mm-hmm. and I think that for me, that's why I love talking about stuff like this is yeah. why I do this with my life is because I feel deeply when something like this resonates and, uh, and yeah, this movie had that has that effect. It's it's a it's a wonderful fictional romp that also resonated very deeply for me. Yeah, and let yeah. me let me bring this back to what we were talking about earlier too. Like we were talking about religion and religious movies, and yes. I, as as humans, what we want are stories. We want stories to help us to sort out the world. Yeah, contextualize the world, help us figure out problems, maybe uh, give us a little bit of hope, give us a little bit of direction. And I'm not embarrassed to say, like, I all the pop culture I love does give me a bit of that, you know, and the key is I'm I'm trying not to be a fan who worships it and can become, Mm -hmm. you know, crazy or become a zealot if things uh, aren't treated the way they are in the, uh, you know, in the Bible of my pop culture. (laughs) Um, But I am trying to, you know, that's kind of how I look at things. I think stories in general do that. And this movie just perfects that idea. This is why we go to movies. This is why we tell each other stories. Well, I I actually, you know, you guys talk about like uh, Jake Johnson, Peter Parker's arc. And uh, I did find that to be really like, I found that to be a great idea uh, Mm -hmm. and pretty well executed in the film, which is, uh, you know, that that, character is going to be changed as well like we the story is miles but but really this down in his luck peter parker that through the extraordinary things that he goes through in this movie and through meeting all these other people through the shared camaraderie that they have as spider-man uh he realizes that like he can still change things in his own universe mm-hmm. and i really, miles I really saves like peter it. parker in yeah, a way yeah. that's yeah. It's it's kind peter of parker. amazing we didn't really talk much about the first peter parker instance we see yeah basically the perfect golden age peter parker who's also blonde for some reason and i, I was looking it up on imdb and a catholic and a catholic <laughs> and voiced by chris pine who yeah. i didn't even realize which was that, that's kind of fun but he he has a moment where he just takes you know the entire battle kind of glibly he's like oh yeah i'm just dealing with this uh end of the world scenario again uh you know fighting a giant croc i think um or was it fighting the green, green goblin, goblin who's huge yeah. for some reason um and it, like taking in stride and then he has a moment just like i'm so tired and I feel like I would love to see more superhero stories do that as well, because it's really in that short scene we see with this character. This is a guy who's trying so hard, like his entire his mask is trying to put on a positive face as the world is about to end, basically. And he's he's just like ready for it to kind of be all over. I f- I found that pretty fascinating. As well. I love that all these characters are like that. He's so yeah. unapologetically heroic that the minute he meets Miles, he's like, hey, I'm going to train you. You like there's not even a pause, a hesitation, and the music swells and shows him in such a heroic ballet. But even later in the film, when all of the characters are like asked to sacrifice their lives, one of them has to stay behind. Everybody steps forward saying, I'll do it. But none of them are trying to show another character up. They're not trying to be the hero. It's just in their nature to be that way. And I I found that so moving. Like there's no sense of competition. It's just pure genuine out of your heart heroism 
And there's such a beautiful shorthand. I think you mentioned this in your article too, Dan, is there's such this beautiful shorthand of them recognizing each other and saying, you're like me. And I love how the movie just establishes that as a thing. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's pure, it's genuine, it's instantaneous, complete acceptance. Oh, you're like me. Okay. All right. You know, there's no, is no judgment. And I, I just thought that was such a beautiful sentiment in and of itself, just how, how mm-hmm. pure that was. Yeah, it's a great a moment. Couple, the, the, go ahead, Dave. Well, uh, a couple moments really when that, that kind of sentiment comes along, which is like, I think Gwen at some point, Spider-Gwen says, like, we're the only people that could actually understand what you're going through. And then there's yeah, a moment right, in the final right. sequence where, uh, you know, uh, Jake Johnson, Spider-Man says, I can't let Spider-Man die. And then Miles says, neither can I, you know, and like they're all yeah. on the same same boat, right? Except he's the one who also dealt with it already. He has the guilt of seeing right. Spider-Man die in front of him. That's and right. Kind of yeah. none of them did. Uh, also want to say like that moment, that that spark moment between them. Yeah, it's Spidey senses. That's how I feel whenever I meet a like-minded, you know, geek, movie yeah. nerd, comic nerd, something like that. Like it is that spark of you're like me. You can understand me too. Dan, Dan and I and Alex uh, have often referenced that feeling when we first met each other uh playing dungeons and dragons there was this like oh you're we're the same kind of person we're the same and uh yeah it's a special thing i I also want to bring up uh we haven't really talked about spider gwen yet uh and she's great in the movie the realization of her is phenomenal and it just reinforces to me how objectively perfect that costume is it is seeing it in motion on the big screen i know it's awesome in the comics as well but that is the best spider costume ever designed, in my opinion. It is perfect. And I love seeing her in motion. I love seeing her in the costume. And it makes me hope that whatever the next film in this series is, I, I know that there's a post credit scene that sort of indicates we're going to see Spider-Man 2099 and, <laughs> and, and another sort of Spider-Verse crossover. I really would love this movie to just sort of say, we did the Spider-Verse, now let's just talk about Miles and maybe Gwen and have a movie that's about them. I and think that's what the the idea is, yeah. I hope so. I, I think that would be so much better than worrying about contriving a new way to, to have the giant multiverse crossover again just because the first movie did. I would love – I just want to see more Miles. I want to see more Spider-Gwen. I want to see their stories and them yeah. do – things in movies <laughs> I, I love those characters i, I think we're, we're gonna hear more about their relationship and there's also the uh, the spider women sequel too uh that's gonna be kind of a spin-off of this whole thing but yeah want to see more of all that to there to that point i think this movie really highlights something uh about comics that's really important um this movie to me is a validation for why comics as a medium needs to continue and exist Disney could put out like one Marvel movie and it would make more than all of their comics combined make in a year. You know, Spider-Gwen was read by maybe 20,000 people. It's like if right. they said, we're going to make a slash film cast movie. Like it, it just. You get more listeners than that. Yeah. Well, that's actually, that's okay. actually true. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, fine. I, I take it back. But um, <laughs> like it's an incredibly small niche thing. And. And it, and, it, and this movie only validates why it's uh, so important to kind of put these really top-level creators writing comics, even if hardly anyone is reading them. They're idea factories for incredible stuff, and half the ideas in this movie only were born within the past five years. Spider-Gwen yeah. 
is three years old. Like, it's incredible that she's even in this movie. Like, how did they fit that in in the turnaround time, you know? And yeah. it was a one-off lark of a comic. So, um, Well, I, I uh, agree with your overall message there and uh, disagree with the backhanded statements about the slash. <laughs> Come on to our audience. show. I think, I think he implied that? that we're... I think he implied that we're an idea factory, though, Dave. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> yes, that must be it. Um, we we haven't uh, we we talked about like generally how the uh, animation is really great, but a couple of touches. First of all, the I like how the end of the film is basically like a freaking Fantasia. It's like it's just insane. <laughs> um, every single idea they like psychedelic, you know, uh, explosion of color and. Uh, it's just it's amazing. Look, the the dimension when the dimension portal thing opens up. uh, You're going into the inks on the page. You're going into those Ben Day dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Also, like we haven't talked about the design of Kingpin. Um, and didn't love it. Of course, uh, didn't love it. I thought it was amazing. It it was such a physically formidable. For you, you can understand like, oh, I I can buy that that guy can kill Spider Man. Right. And compared yeah. to uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yes. Yeah. No, I, 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 you know, there's been lots of uh, versions of Kingpin where he's annoying. I mean, Frank Miller drew him as like a yeah. brick shithouse. But uh, <laughs> the <laughs> I didn't like his sort of head hovering in the middle of his body there. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't love it. It's that. very I, like I, uh, Ninja Turtles cartoon. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I love, I love it. It's like this guy's body is so massive that his head is like a tiny speck in the vast ocean of his body. Up. And also, how is that Leo Schreiber? Like, that's what did he do? He's doing like a Ray there? Donovan impression, though. Like exactly, yeah. Ray Donovan. That's a show that exists. <laughs> uh, I I don't want to end our discussion, by the way, before talking about like the cultural impact of all this. And I love that this movie starts. Uh, you know, we start with Miles Morales. We start with him uh, deep in Brooklyn in a diverse neighborhood. Uh, he has a black father. He has a Puerto Rican mother. And the movie doesn't shy away from any of that and really embraces all that. We talked about the code switching in that walk uh, to his school early on. And that's something I see people dealing with a lot. I know a lot of folks uh, from like this area of Brooklyn, like Flatbush, uh, who had to go to private schools uh, that are in the richer and more fancier areas. And that transition is jarring. It's a weird culture shift. And I love how that idea, just like that culture shift, also kind of embodies the idea of Spider-Man. Like you have to, in a way to survive, you know, being a kid coming from inside the city, going to a much more affluent part of the city. um, You have to be a little heroic to kind of survive all that, too, because this is a whole other world and all these new challenges and your jokes might not work, you know, in the new place like they do with everyone else in your neighborhood. I found that parallel pretty fantastic. Mm. All right. Um, well, I, I think uh, we've said a lot about this movie. Why don't we wrap it up? But before I do that, I, I do want to ask you guys, uh, how do you feel this Spider-Man movie ranks in the annals of Spider-Man movies? Right. Uh, Dan, let's start with you because I think you've already answered the question. Right. I think this is this is it. This is the best Spider-Man movie. Best, better than Spider-Man 2. Better than Spider-Man I mean, 1. I love Spider-Man 2, but it will always be an adaptation of a particular group of comics, mm-hmm. you know, up to issue 120. The classic and it's, stuff, yeah. It's a, it's a perfect recreation of that, and I couldn't ask for something more that I want. But this is beyond that. This is like a cultural phenomenon. It's the more important film. Hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Kanata, how about you? Well, I would say... 
up to this point, my favorite Spider-Man movie, movie, movie was uh, Captain America: Civil War, mm. <laughs> and uh, and then followed by Homecoming. Uh, I think this tops both of those. I would say my favorite Spider-Man emotion is probably the PlayStation 4 Spider-Man game. Mm. I think that's uh, so non-movie, but Spider-Man in a medium, right? Yeah, and Just, I, but I think <laughs> honestly, I think this tops that as well. I think this this is more daring, more dynamic, more interesting, more heartfelt. I mean, I, I love the the Sony game that came out this year. So we haven't really had it very long. Mm -hmm. It's a beautifully told story in the context of a video game, but this, this film is something altogether special. And I, I don't think that it reaches that level without all of the factors of how it's told, how it's presented, the animation itself, the look and feel, I think elevates it for me uh, in ways that the live action movies simply couldn't, but also it just feels special. It just feels like this love letter to comic books. Devendra. Yeah, that's an impossible question, Dave. How <laughs> dare you ask us this question? Uh, I love Spider-Man too. It's still w probably my overall favorite superhero movie. Like it's, it's a movie that I've watched and studied and just have loved for so long. So, you know, I've lived with that movie for so long. I'm not just going to throw it away for this, but this movie is up there. It is definitely a second for me, followed by probably homecoming and then civil war. Um, I gotta agree with you, first... man. I, I gotta agree yeah. with you. Like, I'm in the same boat. I think Spider-Man. I mean, this movie's awesome and and yeah. is great. But I, I don't know. I feel like Spider-Man Two. Well, uh, it had the grounding of the first movie, which was not bad. Like that was a that was a good movie. Solid, you know, we yeah. we got a, to a solid start, and then two can just like leap in and just get the ball rolling. You know, really introduce a new villain, do some really cool stuff, just like X Two. You know, you can do a lot as a sequel. Uh, right now we're asking for like more character growth from Miles Morales. And I think you'll, you would see some of that in a follow-up movie. Uh, I do agree with you, Dan, though, that this is the more important movie for sure. And I, like I've seen Spider-Man two more times than I can count. Um, <laughs> but the, to me, the difference is Spider-Man two's kind of emotional story is locked into this Peter, Mary Jane thing. And that's the resolution mm -hmm. at the end. And also Doc Ock. And I think, Doc Ock. Great obvi sympathetic obviously. villain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the villains in this are sympathetic too. like Kingpin's story. Like, I don't agree with him, but I, I understand his motives fully. It's a very Kingpin thing. Like this, why, why are you hate the person uh, who, uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense at all, but he has to blame somebody except himself, I guess. But I, I, I think what pushes this over for me is like, I just, the Mary Jane performance in the original Spider-Man movies, it just, I never a hundred percent, like bought Mary Jane there. And I felt like the performances weren't as sincere as they right. are in this. When, when Miles is saying goodbye to Gwen, that they're going to be friends. Like I believe it a hundred percent, uh, like for every second of it. Um, and, and they're animated. I mean, who'd have thunk, but anyway, that's just, that's just me mm -hmm. talking. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat as Devendra. Spider-Man two, still my number one. This one is, uh, right after that. I think this one is probably the number two. Um, just because of all the stuff you guys have already said. So, uh, all right. This has been a lot of fun, uh, but we got to wrap it up. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our, our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Dan Gvosden, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at at Sup Spider Talk, and uh, you can listen to my podcast, which is the Amazing Spider Talk, 
where we kind of talk about the past, present, and future of Spider-Man. So if you're a lay person with Spider-Man and you want to learn all about the character, you can start at season one and learn about the full history of the character with all the creators of the character that come on the show. Uh, very cool, and uh, really appreciate you joining us today, Dan. Uh, Jeff Kanata, how about you? You can follow me online on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T, and I do a video game podcast called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Devendra Hardware. Oh, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech and gadget.com, and also doing a new tech podcast at nomoretech.net. That's new with a K. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. Subscribe to my emails at DaveChen.net slash letters, which is something I'd really recommend that you do. Um, and next week, a bunch of movies come. They're just cramming all these movies into this month. It's real. It's actually uh, pretty yeah. irritating. It's um, too much. We got Aquaman, we got Bumblebee, and we got Welcome to Marwin. I did a poll on Twitter today. I said, like, uh, are you planning on going to see Welcome to Marwin? And uh, only 35% of the people said yes. Uh, at at some point, not even in theaters, forty six percent said no, nineteen percent said what's welcome to Marwin. I feel uh, kind of I, I just don't think that movie is going to do well at all, which is Poor a bummer Zemeckis. because uh, Zemeckis, Zemeckis, yeah, yeah Zemeckis is, is is a very talented filmmaker, uh, but I don't know why he keeps remaking documentaries as narrative <laughs> films. It's kind of yeah. that I just don't think this was going to do well either, um, especially because the documentaries he's ba- basing them off are very very good. Marwin Call is excellent, mm-hmm. and, and so is Man on Wire. But uh, a lot of people have been asking that we review Bumblebee. I've heard it is the best Transformers film ever. Yep. Low bar. But uh, <laughs> it's going to be Aquaman, guys. It's going to be Aquaman for next week uh, is what we're going to be reviewing. So and we're, We'll attempt to do the same thing we did this week, which is rate this in all the pantheon of Aquaman movies. Yeah, yeah. This, it's, gonna be it's, it's this and the 30 seconds of the Vincent Chase Aquaman and Entourage, basically, are the only two competitors. Um, but, Very difficult uh, task. It is difficult. I think between those two, it'll be a tough choice. Um, but we'll find out on next week's episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First time director Wallace Byrne Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Sidesalad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wiggington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out who exploded Vivian Stone. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.